Lexi Harris was much more than a friend and a loyal member of the Powerathi family. She was a unique and bright star that elevated those of, uh, those of us that were lucky enough to know her. Um, the Powerathi family, myself, my own family, and Tex and everybody that was lucky enough to spend time with her was saddened to hear of her passing. Um, you know, through the episode that we did with her recently, we talked about her message and the work that she's doing with Ayura and just the friends and family that she's influenced and the good deeds that she's done. Um, it's uh, one of those terrible, terrible situations that we encounter in life. And the finality of it is such that you don't really know what to do other than pick up the pieces and just say farewell to your good friend. And you know, so with that, we're going to re-release our re-step into episode as episode 508. Mm-hmm. And her mission was making leadership more more than just rank and, and connecting law enforcement to the community. And that was a big part of our, our conversation here is her efforts outside of her duties. And that's representative of the person that she is. And she always, anytime she connected with us, power athlete in person, it was everything that she could do to help us be the best versions of ourselves, whether through conversation or assisting with the power athlete symposium. Yeah. I mean, we hold Callie in high regard and we always have, I mean, we count her as a, you know, not only much more than friends, we count her as family and, uh, you know, I've known Callie for so long that I almost viewers, uh, I'm surprised we're not related. And uh, any time that I got the opportunity to be around Callie and Lexi, I always joked that, um, you know, Lexi was, you know, the punch to Callie's, uh, you know, Frank Poncherello to, to John Baker. And we used to make jokes about Sarsky and Hutchin all the time, but those two were inseparable and really just an action-packed dynamic duo. And, um, you know, anytime we had the, uh, you know, chance, whether it was a symposium or different events, and she just came in for dinner, just being able to sit and share time and uh, was, was, was always welcome. And their, their podcast, The Leaderist, and I was thinking this yesterday, the importance of the mission there, but now we, we capture who she is as a person. We could always look to the interviews that they were able to, to piece together to empower their community within the Seattle Police Department but also other leaders, coaches, CEOs, and the, the mission that was, was live with them. And they were living. Yeah, no, they, they were definitely, um, I would definitely say that about Lexi and Callie. They are doers. They mm-hmm. are, you know, people that keep moving the ball, uh, you know, inch by inch across these different yard lines. And, um, you know, with something like this happening, uh, the finality of what happens is so abrupt but the people that are left behind are left to kind of pick up the pieces and to continue to carry on that mission. And uh, whenever something like this happens, I just remember uh, a little Irish prayer that my mom used to say to me a lot, which is, uh, may the road road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun always shine and warm on your face. And may the the rain fall softly on your fields. And we uh, say goodbye to our good friend. And the fact that we have... Uh, this episode as posterity is forever valuable, just like I'm sitting here looking at the picture from uh, you know, Power Athlete Radio we did with my dad, where we got an opportunity to, to have that and put that in print, you know, Fred Hatfield and the people we've lost. So um, without further ado, Lexi Harris. New Year. Oh, new, new Year, new me, new you, new we. 
new us. week. Welcome to the Power Athlete Radio, or the first Power Athlete Radio episode for 2021. Yes, right. With the new year, new me, new we, new us. New us, new you. Everything's new. New shoes, <laughs> new glue. I'll go to the bay and play with some clay. I, I just may. All we know is that Power Athlete Radio is in full effect, and we are kicking the door off the hinges for 2021. Yeah. So Happy come Friday. on in, sit down, buckle up, put your seat up in an upright position, set up those tray tables, because mm-hmm. we are about to rocket this thing to the moon. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a new year, which means you may have new fitness goals or may know someone who has new fitness goals. What, what could those fitness goals be, Luke? I, I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to get jacked. I want to get jacked. I want to see my ab veins. I need veins in my traps like uh, Hugh Jackman in um, X-Men. I want to be able to run up mountains, you know, mm. and leap tall buildings in a single bound. What oh, should I do? Performance-based goals. I want to be stronger. I want to be faster. I want to have greater capacity. Those are some goals. So what other be, goals? I just want to be sexy. Mm-hmm. Sexy well, AF. And Texas bringing sexy back. That's right. Yeah. And part of a community. Yeah. That is a big goal. I need... Find a training. Do you like think purpose to train? Do you think community is a vital ingredient to meeting your performance and fitness and, you know, physical goals? Well, maintaining. Because yeah. you're... The motivation that you're feeling today, I'm talking to listeners. Yeah. Right now at this moment uh-huh. is fleeting. That's right. Community breeds compliance. Well, and I compliance breeds results. The one thing I think we learned in 2020 was we don't necessarily know what's coming at us. Just Mm -hmm. when you think you got it figured out, you don't. That's right. And so, with that idea in mind, you cannot be unprepared. You need a contingency plan for your contingency plans. That's you got to have this set course that you're going to go on that you can pivot and you got to work with people that are malleable and can pivot and move and shuck and jive like they are. You know, Fred Smoot on a love boat party. <laughs> <laughs> Throwback. Google it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's right. We have a catalog of training programs for you, regardless of the goal, regardless of your equipment setup. I know you've been just trolling Facebook Marketplace, getting used equipment, building out your home gym, because a lot of this COVID pandemic has people building out their home gyms. Well, we have the training program for you. That's right. Power Athlete provides at-home training solutions, coaching experiences. We set the daily workout. It gets pushed to your phone. You get a community that you get to interact with. You get a panel of coaches that can can fix your lift. I mean, we have it all for you, baby. And, uh, oh, what are your training goals? We have, we have that covered as well. I'd be shocked if we didn't, John, unless your goal was to do nothing. Well, you could do that just by listening to this podcast. That's right. Well, I guess we have that as well, John. Yeah, Great point. If, if you don't want to do anything, you can just... Mm-hmm. Set up and listen to how many episodes we have to tax? Like four hundred and thirty episodes. Oh, don't sell yourself short, John. Four forty. We're pushing. This is four hundred and thirty-seven. So mm-hmm. four hundred thirty-seven episodes, which constitutes hundreds, hundreds of hours, mm-hmm. John millions, of inc- <laughs> billions of, of incredibly insightful, edgy, humorous, intelligent banter. Mm-hmm. So you figure let, let, at least one or two hours. Let's of just that. do the math real quick, right? Four hundred forty episodes. Average episode, we'll say, is an hour and a half. So 440 times 1.5 is 10 million. (laughs) (laughs) So 10 million hours of... uh, Just laying there, doing nothing, just (laughs) just absorbing these Mm -hmm. angelic voices into your soul. Can they listen while they work out? 
Uh, yeah, people do. Of course. Oh, okay, nice. That's You absolutely can. You the may. problem is when you start talking, they just instantly fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And well, then that's they get. how <laughs> Ruby goes to sleep. That is, yeah. I just start reading her one of Texas blogs. And she cries, vomits, and sleeps. Like me. Just like Dad. Um, <laughs> just kidding, oh, Texas. Uh, just, just kidding. No, no uh, he's not. Ladies and gentlemen, so if you want to see what we have to offer, head to powerathletehq.com. And if you go to the training page, you're going to find all of the training programs laid out for you and a new and improved survey where you can answer a few questions. We will, we will make a recommendation of what we, which program is right for you. And if that doesn't meet your needs, you can always shoot us an email That's at right. info at powerathletehq.com and ask for help saying, mm-hmm. hey, guys, which program should I follow? Yep. And yep. have a brief dialogue and we'll get back to you and uh, help you get on the right program. That's it. Now, let's get to the show, shall we? Dear friend of ours, for, uh, former partner of podcast producer Callie Hinsman, she's, uh, is on the show she's today, her Lexi pa- Harris. Is, uh, if Callie's paunch, is Callie John or who's paunch? Like, I'm, I'm kind of like going for the dynamic there. It's like, who's the Starsky and Hutch? I think who's they're... The, <laughs> who's the paunch and John? Who's the Cagney and Lacey? Mm-mm. Other guys. Um, I think that Lexi is Mark Wahlberg and Callie is Will Ferrell. What was his name? Terry. I can't remember. Gator. I'm just remembering. Yeah. <laughs> Terry, Terry is Marky Mark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and it's, Gator. Well, Gator is his pimp name. Yeah. Remember that? He's like, he's like, Gator wants some walking around money. I want to get buy some new shoes. <laughs> what? What? It's uh, Terry Walls. No, that she's uh, Alan Gamble. Alan, Alan Gamble and Terry. Terry Hoyts. Hoyts. Terry Hoyts <laughs> of Seattle PD. But yeah, <laughs> can they be the 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 dan- the PK the Highsmith and Dancing? Highsmith and Danson? I was. That's the yeah. chase scene. That I like I was when he looks at when he, when he looks out. He's like, aim for the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, man! That's a great. That's a How's great that not a cameo. Spin-off? That's a great cameo. How's that not a spinoff? Because they died. Yeah. No but prequel. Prequel. Um, anywho, Lexi Harris is on the show today. Seattle police officer, uh, as well as founder of Ura I U R A, and her mission. In light of everything going on, the chaos with COVID, with a lot of the defunding the police and a lot of civil unrest, her solution is to get adequate leadership training to all levels of police everywhere. And that's what year is all about. I-U-R-A-L-L-C.com. But we're going to talk to more with Lexi, catch up with her. Um, kind of get a state of the affairs, state yeah. of affairs in, in Seattle. Yeah, no, I mean, it was great to talk to somebody who was on the ground uh, yeah. within law enforcement that's been dealing with the protests and the riots and really the civil unrest that's been ripping this country up with for the last year. Mm-hmm. So I'm, um, I'm really pretty fascinated to hear her outlook because it's always great. I mean, I think in these situations, they're so emotionally charged. And the only thing that we see is what the media portrays to us. And, uh, you know, it's always great to talk to somebody who's mm-hmm. on the ground that's dealing with this and kind of their perspective and how it all goes. Yeah. So and it's an impactful conversation. She's got to take it home with her. So yeah. we touch on that a little bit and, you know, staying sane so she can stay focused when she is on the clock. Yeah, it was a good one. Should we do it? Let's do it. Ready, ready. Go. So how is it going in Seattle? I mean, uh, you, you know, and, and this is purely from what we see on the news. It's kind yeah. of the epicenter of insanity. Uh, I'd say Portland's probably the epicenter. We just get the runoff. But, uh, yeah, we, I mean, there's sort of two main dedicated groups that are still going and protest every day to level, like different levels of, um, 
like some actually they'll break property and stuff, but at this point they're so small that we can manage them pretty well. So Yeah, I saw that there was a division where the BLM people were kind of uh, you know, fighting back against the Antifa folk because they they keep coming and hijacking all of their protests and turning it into this like massive destruction, which is uh, changing sediments against their movement and like, you know, I mean, but that's kind of typical if you look at all the history for any anarchist Marxist movement, they always write on the back of some form of social, you know, social change, some so social movement, and that's how yeah. they kind of ride into battle on it. Well, that's absolutely been going on <laughs> since the very beginning, and uh, which makes it extremely hard to manage the really large groups, but that's one of their tactics. I mean, they even have a uh, like an infograph that they've disseminated where they use the peaceful protesters in the front kind of as a, a shield and they'll throw things from behind them um, and sort of inviting that conflict and then you know they'll act off that but it's absolutely one of their tactics hmm. well Lexi I mean we've we know we know you on a personal level of knowing you for years but maybe our listeners don't know you so why don't we start with like a little intro sure However long you want. It could be two hours or two minutes. Oh, I have to introduce myself. You're not going to introduce me? No, I, we, don't, we don't have time for me to go on and on and meander. Nah, Luke next already talks know, too much. Yeah, next thing you know, we'll be talking about um, the Airbnb that we stayed in two years ago. I oh, think we, we should can talk start about there. that. Oh, yeah. yeah. You mean the dental office slash um, uh, place where people get axe murdered? You mean, uh, <laughs> Murder uh, den? Yeah, the place that Dexter rented us. Uh-huh. The uh-huh. funniest part about that, Luke, is that Callie <laughs> sold it to me so hard. She was like, it's going to be a lake house. So we'll totally relax. It'll be beautiful. And then we got, dro- <laughs> we got dropped off by the Uber. And I was looking at her, and she was looking at me, and we're like, this has to be wrong. Yeah. yeah, no, You came know. around the corner. Yeah, well, and there we were. We originally yeah. had a lake house. Yeah, and I, what the hell happened uh, again? They backed out or something. Yeah, they backed out. They had to do remodeling or something. So then we settled for the number two. Yeah, or There's a 10. Or, with yeah, the, you know, with the standard, the with the bleed room. We're, you know, the whole room <laughs> oh, dedicated God. to bleeding out. Oh, no, that was the team shower. Yeah, the team shower. The funny part is I see McQuilkin in the team shower and, uh, like, you know, brushing tea, taking a shower, the whole deal. And as we get back in, I see, um, I'm like, hey, Kelly, the shower's open. She's like, no, there's one right there. Yeah, and there was like a normal shower shower bathroom. I'm like, I I just assumed why would they have two shower, like. Well, yeah, some of us played on sports teams, and that's normal. (laughs) Yeah. The funny thing, John, is Tex already knew that. He just wanted to take a shower with you. Mm -hmm. Eh, It's not the first time I've showered with men. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's, I believe you guys, like, didn't Callie have a few portraits of cats over her bed or something? Well, yeah, but she brought those with her. Oh, yes. Yeah. She, packed, uh, <laughs> yeah, she, she had to have the extra them. large bag, you know. Yeah, to... She travels with at least a dozen portraits of different cats. Uh, I mean, she... Good times. Kind of like the lady from Titanic. You remember when she gets back on the boat? Mm-hmm. She has all of the pictures of all of her stuff that she used to take with her. Mm-hmm. Callie does mm-hmm. the same thing with, yeah. uh, with cats. It's just, you know, just a very normal and... Totally acceptable uh, work trip with just some colleagues in a totally normal Airbnb doing normal stuff. Wow, that's what I would. That's how I would summarize that weekend. Would you concur? I would concur. Yeah, I I think it was a good. uh, It was good. You know, anytime we get to go to Summer Strong, and I think the really interesting thing in the depression for two for twenty twenty has to be that we miss Summer Strong, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know, no Power Athlete Symposium either. So I think twenty twenty one 
It's going to yeah. be our year when everything, we write the ship. Mm -hmm. Hopefully this doesn't mm -hmm. extend and we mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, I missed both of those greatly this summer. And I, I was just dying to get out of Seattle and uh, come visit you guys or go to Summerstorm or something. And it, it just sucked that there was nothing to kind of get away. But but you asked me to introduce myself. So mm -hmm. I know you guys through Callie Hinsman. Um, we both work together uh, on the Seattle Police Department. And... Uh, we actually both, I started about a year, a little less than a year after her, and we ended up on the same squad, um, and we realized we have a very similar background. We both, I mean, came from the fitness industry in different aspects, but, um, and then got into police work, and we ended up being patrol partners, and we worked extremely well together, and then she invited me down to, um, I think first I went to Austin uh, for a shooting uh, seminar that she had uh, won through uh, one of your um, events, and then I came down to your event, uh, to the symposium, and then started to get to know you guys, and, you know, so on and so forth. Yep, the rest is history, as they say, John. The rest is history, yeah. Who says that? They, they, they do, them, uh, those, them, and they. The royal we. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, it was you and Niedermeyer, Hinsman, at a Softleet, at the Softleet, uh, like, tactical course that... Uh, yeah, Brett and them put up for yeah. auction at the symposium the year prior that Callie won. Uh, well, was yeah. it the year prior or was it two years prior? Maybe two years because I think there was like a gap. Yeah, right? yeah. Something got yes. yeah, she held on to it for a while before mm -hmm. we went down, yeah. Yeah, no, I was having to ride Brett on that and being like, hey, let's get this done. And he's like, ah, okay. And then they were able to get that shooting spot out in Bastrop. Um, so that, that was an awesome shooting uh, seminar and something about Brent... Um, actually he he totally led my like he's going to be tied into this summer forever for me we were kind of gearing up for the first few protests after uh the george floyd incident happened and you know we were seeing what was going on around the country but we weren't sure how it was going to impact seattle and we were ready for saturday to be a big deal um but i was getting ready to go to work on friday and i get and you know we talk every once in a while i get a text from him like be careful tonight and I was like, something like that. And I was like, really? Uh, why? You know, we're expecting it tomorrow, but not today. And he, I got the dot, dot, dot. And he knew more about what was going to happen there uh, mm -hmm. on that Friday than our, than we knew. And we were totally unprepared, but it, it popped off pretty bad that night. So it'll always be yeah. a moment wow. in time. Yeah. It's always good to have uh, clandestine friends that know things yeah. that most of the normal people don't know. So like I... Like, uh, there's various people I'll text things to that, like, you know, are in the know. And it's like, I, I got one the other day and sent it over and I just got back like, ah, this sounds like bullshit. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, you always got to have somebody who is a little more dialed in on all this stuff than you to maybe as a sounding board, because there's so much information and we're in such an interesting time with all this misinformation and it's happening on both sides of the aisle, you know, um, you know, you have like the mainstream media and then you have all these kind of like fly-by-night spark up news things where you look and you see the name and you're like i've never even heard of this and are coming out with these you know alleged bombshells so mm -hmm. it's uh it's pretty interesting to see the, the you know times and you know what in. i've been like because there's like some interesting stuff that'll get cross-posted on social right and it's like it's politically charged one way or the other like right now is like a, the election stuff and counting and i can't i'm like i my first instinct is i wonder how much it would be to hire actors and film this like in a hotel you know, like instead of it be an official hearing or something like that. And I can't believe that that's my initial reaction to like to filtering 
and determining the validity of social media content. Like there's no lower third, there's no ticker, this isn't an official media outlet that like has their, their on-screen whatever on it. So like, what is this? What was the motive? And like, is it bullshit? And uh, how- I, that's, that's my starting point with social media is I start at bullshit and then I look for anything that'll give me context mm-hmm. and then I try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's certainly been the case, like from things that I've experienced, you know, personally, you right, watch how right. it goes down and then you see it in a 10 second clip or you see it presented a certain way. And you're like, well, that's definitely not how it happened because I watched it with my own two eyes. But, you know, so I, I have I started bullshit and then, mm-hmm. you know, figure it out. I mean, there. that's got to be so frustrating well, for you. It uh, it's always happened. I mean, um, I, and I've told you these guys this in the NFL. Um, there were, you know, articles and things would happen with moves and these people would speculate that was totally wrong. And they would fabricate these stories that you were like, no, this isn't exactly how it went down. I mean, even on the, you know, uh, Hard Knocks show we were on, they fabricated all this stuff. Like no, they, they created all no, these John, stories. it's not true. <laughs> so like, and that's just within sports. And these are games. I mean, these are just, yeah, like entertainment. Yeah, now, I mean, also no, like, it's, profe- to- like it's, it's totally entertaining. Yeah, not to minimize the, the fact that it was being minimize done. Minimize the fuck out of it but. because it is entertainment. <laughs> uh, people forgot that professional athletes are just paid entertainers. Mm-hmm. We just push people around and wear white spandex. Um, they're not warriors? No, there's no, sure? there's no warriors or anything <laughs> going on. No, but no imaginary battles are being fought. But uh, I used to see that on our side. And so when I look at this present climate and landscape that we're in, where now, I mean, the difference between the team winning and losing and Vegas odds are one thing. But now you're looking at, like, you know, this pivotal point within this country. I mean, there's people that benefit on both sides of the aisle from this thing. And it doesn't I mean, it would make sense that things would skew one way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, based on what your output. I did read a really interesting um, piece on Vegas betting on the presidency. Mm. So originally uh, Trump was uh, like going into it like, a, you know, like a Biden was a two to one. And then all of a sudden, as they started voting, they became even. And then Trump went, went to a two to one, three to one. He got up to an eight, eight to one. And then all of a sudden, Fox News declared Arizona uh, for Biden. And he dropped to a two to one. So they were they were speculating that the uh, the way it was moving and that drop was calculated as a as the fix was in within like a Vegas odds. And they were talking about the amount of people who basically flopped their votes and or uh, uh, like their betting. And so this guy was like, I'm a bookie and we were taking bets on this thing Mm -hmm. and uh, we got shelled. But there was a whole bunch of like rich, influential people that literally placed this bet properly. And the guy was like, you know, if you look at the Vegas odds makers, they're usually never wrong. Uh, I mean, those guys like it's pretty amazing. Like, I mean, watch any NFL game or basketball game like the spread is always so damn close. You're like, how the fuck do these guys always call this thing? Mm-hmm. And um, it was just pretty interesting how this Vegas, the, this Vegas you know, bookie odds maker guy was like, you know, uh, uh, we all got shelled because we didn't see this coming, but there was a group of people that knew this was coming. Oh, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I guess going back, Lexi, maybe you can... Well, it is a dramatic career change Yeah, for you to it then is, yeah. enter the police force from your fitness field. So what was that inspiration, that background, and push to go all in? Because I think this will lead us to the, the training and your experience entering into this field. Yeah. Um, well, I had done a couple moves right before getting back to Seattle. Uh, my fiance got a job here, so 
we moved back and I was trying to reestablish my fitness business. And I mean, as you know, that's not the easiest thing. And I was just sort of burnt out on the personal one-to-one client thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started thinking about different careers I could have that would be meaningful for me. And um, I grew up doing a lot of kind of community activism stuff and just working, um, always being out, always being around people. And so I uh, was thinking about a couple of different careers. I did not want to go back to school, sort of burnt out on that as well. Um, so my fiance used to be, a lot, he was a sheriff's deputy um, in Idaho. And I had really not known much about the career, but he started talking to me about it. And it just sort of checked all those boxes. Like, it's never going to be the same. My attention span won't, you know, run out. I can do, do different things within one career, you know, especially if you're with a larger agency. Um, I like talking to people. Um, all those things just kind of started adding up. I did a couple of ride-alongs and I was like, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. Um, and I, I tested and I got in, so... And then, so for our listeners who aren't familiar, what was like, what's the testing process like out in Seattle? Uh, well, you have to do a physical test, which is kind of a joke. It's you're pretty standard at, you know, what you would do for federal or a lot of law enforcement agencies, you know, push ups, sit ups, run a mile and a half and sprint. I think, uh, I can't remember how much, um, and then you have to do a written test. And then if you pass those two, then you get into, the background and interviews, um, oral boards, um, uh, psych tests, polygraph. And then once you're, you're in, you have to do that physical test one more time before you go into the academy. And if you pass that, then you're good to go. There you go. And then, and then they partner you up with Hinsman and it becomes a sitcom. And it's basically the Callie and Lexi show bopping around (laughs) Seattle, yucking it up. What's the, uh, what's the, um, Cagney and Lacey? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking more like Ponch and John, but actually what I'm really thinking is more like super troopers. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh, we're oh yeah. Repeat There's it. a little bit of that. Uh-huh. There's a little bit of, uh, get your license right meow. <laughs> I mean, mostly from Cali. So. Well, the problem is she works meow into every conversation long before mm. super troopers. It's mm. just part of the, um, you know, the Hinsman. Meow. Meow. That'll happen, meow. Um, Smells like sex in here. Uh huh. The uh, what? So, what was great about working with Callie though is, uh, you know, besides it being hilarious, is that we had a similar um, sort of growth out uh, outlook on life. So it wasn't just like, all right, let's deal with the call when it comes, but let's play the what if game. You know, like mm-hmm. what if we had a shooter on this bus? How would we deal with that? You know, and after calls, we break, we break them down and talk about what we could have done better. What you know, what we expected from each other that sort of thing and and that's really unique uh it's not often that you find somebody who's a willing to take the time to to play those mental games and be willing to like be humble enough to say okay you know i don't feel like i did well on this what is your opinion that kind of thing um so we worked really well together in that aspect and i brought it on and I, i believe she has as well to what we've done after we we're no longer patrol partners. So like that debriefing process, it makes sense. Like it was kind of something we did after seminars and stuff. Not that, but I'm saying, I guess after a period of time, when you're trying to improve you at the end, at some point you got to start to collect feedback. Right. And it just kind of mm-hmm. is like a, a milestone, I guess. Was that something that you guys like mentors urged you to do? Is there like, or did you guys just freestyle it and come up with your own cadence? Uh, I think, you know, it's obviously something that, you've heard about, but it wasn't necessarily modeled. Um, I think just the nature of our uh, personalities of always wanting to be better and 
you know, then we found that kindred spirit in each other and just uh, fed off each other with that. And then were you able to kind of push that out to some colleagues and other officers or is it just, is it like kind of 50, 50? I hope we did. I mean, when we were patrol partners, we were both still pretty new and there's, uh, I think a little bit of, at least I can speak for myself, you know, I, who am I to tell anyone anything at that mm -hmm. point? And, you know, I always feel like that, but, um, you know, we certainly would try to do things like bring training videos into roll call and stuff and, and keep the conversation on a, you know, on a training aspect rather than what they can often devolve into, which is, uh, you know, a bitch session. So. Right. Is, uh, yeah. Were there challenges associated with being a female officer in kind of a predominantly male-dominated role? Uh, I, I, not... I think sometimes, but it's not um, not something I've experienced a ton of. Uh, it, we actually, when Callie and I started working together, we were two of four females on a, I think, six-person squad. So there was, we were very uh, female-heavy, and that was interesting just because uh, people were not expecting it. You get four females on scene, and mm -hmm. just everybody's confused all of a sudden. Uh, they think they're being pranked. but um, <laughs> Which might actually work I, in your favor. Oh, absolutely. Anytime you can get people thinking outside of like, you know, what they want to do or whatever, it's, it's great. So, but also um, women bring a different approach, like a little bit of a different absolutely. style to yeah. it, uh, more so than, you know, trying to kick the door off the hinges and, you know, prove that I earned my tribal Absol armband. Yeah. And it works the best when, you know, you have people that realize that, that are able to step back and say, okay, I'm not getting anywhere with this person. Maybe a female approach will be better. And I've certainly had times where, you know, I can tell I'm not getting anywhere, anywhere. And just the fact that I'm a, a female is what's working against me. So I can step back and allow a guy to come in and, and do his thing. So I think, you know, there's the, you know, we don't tend to have as much ego. So that's helpful as well. So. Have you seen like, um, I mean, uh, man, I, I, whenever I see anything in the media, especially with like the defund the police or what's happening in Seattle and Portland, I mean, it seems to be really big national. We see it down here. I mean, how like uh, I know that the city council in Seattle has wanted to try to remove, uh, you know, funding to try to put more like kind of social dynamic, I guess, positions in place in terms of outreach and a whole deal. And then I just saw that deal the other day where um, the social worker ended up getting killed. Uh, is there, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, and then your, your chief resigned, uh, who was a, you know, a black woman as well. I mean, I'm just wondering like, mm -hmm. what's the state of the union? I mean, is it like, uh, like, is it like just kind of like putting your fingers in dikes or, you know, what's the kind of the general morale and a, the general approach for law enforcement? Well, I can speak for my department and I, this is obviously just my opinion. I'm not speaking for my department. Um, but it, it, the morale is not great right now. We're, we've lost just a crazy amount of officers this year, uh, whether they went to different departments, retired, or are just leaving law enforcement. Um, it, so staffing is really low. Um, it depends, I think, on where you work and who you work for. There's um, a couple of uh, higher ups that are pretty innovative in their approach and working for them is great because you feel like there's you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, but um, it's hard. It's pretty bleak. Um, feeling like you're constantly having to justify your existence, I think, is 
is difficult as well. Um, and I, so one thing that I'm doing, I, I didn't add in my um, intro, but uh, early on in all of this, I really started seeing uh, the fact that leadership in law enforcement is so important. Um, you know, we'd be in the midst of the chaos and, you know, just like literally surrounded by thousands and thousands of people throwing things at you. And there'd be certain voices that could get on the radio, like uh, lieutenants and commanders, where you would just take the sigh of relief, like, okay, everything's going to be okay today. I know that this person will lead us into safety, right? And then there was times where you'd hear other people and you wouldn't be so sure. So, um that kind of snowballed into an idea for me to create, um, as Callie calls it, a side hustle uh, to work with leadership and law enforcement and trying to really push ideas that can um, make better leaders, uh, competent, confident, uh, and people who will start to work with patrol officers. And, and that goes back to the morale because I've been fortunate to work for some really great people and that's kept me in the department. If I worked for crappy people, I'd probably be with a different department or just gone altogether. So I feel like, Lexi, where you're at least in Seattle, y'all are in like some unprecedented times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a framework for leadership that is like kind of peacetime leaders. And then there's like wartime leaders. And I guess this has to be like, do, are you perceiving it that way that there there have been relatively effective leaderships and, and superiors that were, you know, over the past couple of years during peacetime, like, were able to kind of tend to the flock or tend to the herd. But now it's like things are dynamic. You have to be adaptable. There has to be a positive outlook. Uh, and those are things that maybe some folks are having a hard time keeping up with. Um, yes and no. I, I think that uh, in general, uh, law enforcement has struggled with leadership for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, sort of juggling that... Um, military style of leadership with a more, you know, personnel base, because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, as officers, you have a lot more autonomy and a lot more decision-making than maybe a soldier does um, in battle. So how do you balance that? And then also, you know, are you just an administrator? Have you been out on the street before? Do you have, you know, the buy-in from your officers? And so I think it's always been there as, as far as like, uh, needing to upgrade a little bit. It just is super, um, it becomes magnified in situations of chaos, right? And mm -hmm. then you're going to have your people who have specialties and in crowd management or, you know, that sort of thing and, and step up. Uh, but, you know, you'd like to see that everybody has taken the time to get that, at least a base of that uh, expertise, because sometimes you can't have those people there that are the best of the best, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so. And I guess what type of like what type of training is available to to different levels of leaders? You know, I guess everyone ha at, like you said, there's a level of autonomy, so there needs to be a capability of leadership even at the patrol level because you ultimately are going to be in a decision making space, and you need to have like get people on board and aligned and reactive and in control. So, like within that paradigm, what type of training is available there? And then compare that to maybe like the technical training that's available. Uh, well, in general, I'd say there's not enough training period. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it's just a framing that, you know, it's not framed as leadership. We do get skills and, you know, command control and, and controlling a scene and that 
stuff, but it's not really framed as you are a leader. But I think it is important to frame it that way because we are. I mean, when when you come and you talk to a community member, whether it's, you know, you have to be arresting them or you're just having a conversation, you're the face of the government, you're the face of your city, and, and you should be a leader in that aspect. And so you should comport yourself with, you know, the highest level of integrity. And, um, you know, I'm sure we all fall short of that at times, but it's, it's important. And if you look at, if you start to frame it as like, I am a leader, no matter if I have rank or not, then I think it changes the mindset. And that's really what I'm hoping to do from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once you become, you know, you start to get ranked, there are more things available sort of on the state level, or, you know, you can get sent to it, but it's not built into the programming. Um, which is sort of one of the things I'm hoping to change. How, um, how difficult is it as an officer to enforce, let's say, policies that are made by people that are not on the street? Like, that's something I always thought was interesting with your job, where you have people, let's say, on a city council that have never done a ride-along, that have never really gone out and actually, you know, left their ivory towers, you know, to use a common cliché. Uh, making decisions for people that are on the street, like, um, you know, where you're, like, uh, this is great in theory, but like the pra- practical application, and yet there's the communication doesn't necessarily go two ways. I wonder, you know, how does that necessarily work? And then also, um, you know, police work involves kind of a social contract in a lot of ways. I mean, it's like, you know, we as citizens give, uh, you know, the cities and the states and, you know, local police departments the right to govern and enforce these laws that we've, you know, agreed upon or not agreed upon, depending on how you look at it. And, um, if people don't adhere to that social contract or they feel that it's unjust or, you know, they want, so now you're trying to enforce laws that not everybody's agreed upon or people don't view in the same way, whether it because they're, you know, fucking anarchists or, you know, Marxists or, you know, insane or on drugs or, you know, their perception of reality is altered. So I wonder, like, those two things probably have to make you, uh, like, just probably one of the world's most difficult jobs. Oh, it's incredibly frustrating. I mean, I the amount of times I've wished that I could take some of our city council members on a ride along and just, you know, I don't care. You can ask me the tough questions. You can tell me you disagree with me, but let's just have like a reality based day in, you know, in a patrol car so you can see what we deal with. Because I, I think um, the perception is, is so far removed from what we actually do. Um, so that's a huge frustration um, because you, you'd hope that the people that are making the rules would go that extra mile to to really find out the reality, and it just it just doesn't happen. Um, so that that is frustrating. You know, you do what you can because at the end of the day, they're the ones uh, signing the checks, and you know they're the ones making the laws. And um, as far as you know, I, I think it's also it, that goes to the lawmakers too. Is you know we're expected to. Um, be the uh, enforcers of of the laws that are made on the books, right? So people get upset at us for enforcing laws that were made by their legislator or whatever, and they don't, you know, think about changing that aspect of it. Um, And so, you know, but we do have a lot of officer discretion, which is great because, you know, you can take each situation as they come and, you know, there's some laws we have to make arrests on, like there's, we would lose our jobs, we could get arrested if we don't um but otherwise there's a lot of things that we have some leeway in which is good can you give an example of like of where that gap is maybe for lawmakers city council 
where they have a perception of one thing and like, it's just frustrate. The frustrating reality is something that you carry and you like that loop isn't closed. Um, I think, uh, one frustrating, how we deal with, uh, addiction Mm -hmm. is, is very frustrating. Um, we don't, tend to target users at all um, in Seattle. But so there is a large level of people who are very addicted, um, very homeless uh, and very vulnerable. And they're sort of on the base level of drug use. Uh, We get a lot of heroin, meth and crack um, and actually now fentanyl. Um, And then you've got the street level dealers that take advantage of um, those people who are very vulnerable. And, you know, oftentimes they're not really violent people. They just sort of making a living doing that kind of thing. But a lot of times they are, if we're not patrolling, they're taking advantage. They're, you know, there's a lot of violence that come, comes along with it. There's guns, that kind of thing. So <clears throat> to give you an example of a reality, so a user amount of heroin or meth or crack is, uh, is like 0.1 grams uh, is like a hit, right? Um, our, our prosecutors have deemed anything under 10 grams to be a user amount. Hmm. So 0.1 grams is what we would find on someone who's a user 0.1. So a hundred times. Yeah. Anything above that is atypical to find. Right. And, uh, some of the smartest people I know are drug dealers. Like they're very good business people. They get it. They know how much they should hold and not hold in order to not get that prosecution, right? Um, There's definitely other things that we can factor in when requesting a charge for under 10 grams, but that's sort of one of those, you know, reality versus Mm -hmm. kind of what you hope to be true, I think, um, in, in making those. Yeah. And it's, it's just a different level of offender, right? Like a user, yeah, we want we all want to see them get help. Like we genuinely do. Um, but those that are kind of out there taking advantage, you know, there has to be something different. And it's just they're not recognized on different planes, I guess. How many people do you encounter? I mean, this is an interesting thing. Like I, I, I think there's just always this, um, you know, at least on our side of the spectrum. I mean, uh, and I uh, like I I believe this growing up and it wasn't until I lived in in Berkeley that I realized that this was not accurate but uh I always thought that like people that were on drugs like just happened to like you know get caught into this thing or caught up in this thing and that they were all in this idea of being like remorseful and hey you know I need to get you know I need to get out of this cycle of addiction and I need help and there's this kind of like it's almost like somebody drowning you see and, like, that was kind of what I always imagined whenever I, you know, saw drug addiction or, you know, because, I mean, that's what's on TV shows. You see people with drug addiction and help me. They put them in programs and help them get better because they're sick. Um, mm-hmm. When I went to Berkeley, I realized that uh, a lot of times the people that I would encounter were living the exact life that they wanted. And, like, this is exactly what I want to do. This is where I want to be living. This is what I want my life to be. And I'm not drowning. Like, this is legitimately, like, I'm, you know, just hanging out, having a great time, and this is my life. And I think that's an interesting uh, kind of change of mind where I think that there's this kind of perception that, you know, like uh, the drug addiction and they're taking drugs is like a sickness, whereas in reality, a lot of times these guys are living the exact type of life they want, and they're more than happy, and they enjoy doing what they're doing, and, you know, even though it's a, it's a shitty life, like, they don't imagine anything else. 
And so I wonder yeah. when, when you get out there and you encounter these individuals, you know, I mean, and we, uh, you know, I think we always think about crime too as like, um, you know, uh, people are forced into a life of crime. People aren't naturally selecting this, at least we would assume non-crazy people are. But I, I wonder as you get into Seattle and you get into these larger metropolitan type places where you're like, wow, these people are living the exact life they want and acting in the exact way that they see as like their best life. And I think like even though we view it as that and our laws say, hey, you know, something different, like that perception is kind of an interesting one. Yeah, I think I, I, who knows if they were not taking drugs, if that would be the life they would choose to live, because it's pretty uh, it's pretty bleak. You know, the tents and the just the junk that piles up around it and how, you know, um, just unhealthy it is. Uh, but yes, there's definitely people that when given the choice, they don't want to leave their tent because they're, you know, they're set up. They've got, you know, endless drugs that they can take and nobody's telling them what to do. They, a lot of them seem to be kind of hoarders in a certain way. And they just get a lot of stuff that they get really attached to. And so asking them to leave that and they're just, they're not interested, even though there are programs and shelters. And so it becomes a very hard uh, situation of how to deal with that uh, in a, uh, compassionate way um there's definitely people that i meet that have gotten to the end and are are ready to get help um and i've told that to people plenty of times that i've arrested or just talked to like look i'm not going to offer you help but when you're ready come and find me and i'll help you get it because mm-hmm. so it rock has bottom. to be i yes and you know there's we have this uh guy who's been on patrol on a, on a bike, on a pedal bike in downtown for 20 plus years. And everybody, all the old school people down there, they know him and they'll stop me and ask me about him and um, tell me to tell him they got better. And, you know, they've told me, you know, I used to be uh, super into this and that. And he just arrested me so many times that I got tired of it. So I got better, you know, <laughs> they just, they hit and he always does it with compassion. I mean, he's a good guy, talks to everybody, everybody knows him. Um, but they would get tired of getting arrested by this one guy. And then, you know, they so and they started to almost like have this desire, it seems to me this is how I perceive it, to like prove to him that they could do better or, you know, they want him to know that that they're doing better. And I, I think that's so cool. But he was that brick wall, he was that rock bottom. Um, he provided that, mm-hmm. you know a little bit of structure for them to, to flip things around. So, yeah, my, my brother, who's a defense attorney, he's, um, we were talking about it last week. He's like, you know, it's amazing. Uh, everybody's perception of rock bottom is different. Mm-hmm. He's like, what might be your rock bottom isn't even some is, you know, somebody's penthouse. And he's like, I've, and I asked him, I'm like, you ever run into anybody that didn't have a rock bottom? And he's like, all the time. He's mm-hmm. like, there's people where like you look at them and you're like, you're, you know, you're reading this stuff and you're like, holy shit. Like I would never even have fathomed that this was, could be there anywhere near the bottom. So I think that's an interesting thing when you're out there dealing with people where it's like their perception, like what, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we don't have crystal balls and, um, you know, but I'm sure there's like, what approach have you seen if like, you know, you guys are going out and trying to do these, you know, benevolent programs to go out and help, uh, you know, less fortunate drug addiction, all this, like, how do you fight that? Uh, it feels like we're losing this war. I mean, we've already lost yeah, the war. I, I saw we, you know, we lost the war on drugs that Richard Nixon declared. I mean, uh, you know, with Oregon, I mean, basically uh, legalizing everything. Um, but like, what's the solution? Is it like more money into like uh, counseling? Is it homes? Is it, you know, buying apartment buildings for them to live in? I just wonder, like, do you, 
what is the person on the on the street solution? Uh, you know, I, I could get pretty deep into my opinions of this. It's not really the, reality, the, but <laughs> these are all, well. I mean, all, all um, of this is based on your perception and your opinion. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, well informed. Yeah, you are like. So, so the way I look at it is, if I want to know what's happening, I'm going to go to the person that's actually dealing with this on a daily basis, not the person that's, yeah. you know, looking at it through a set of, you know, binoculars. So, I kind of break it up in my own mind at three different levels, like pre-incarceration, incarceration, and post-incarceration, right? Um, so, pre-incarceration is everything that leads up to that person having to deal with us as law enforcement, right? So, it's how they're raised, their family structure, their uh, you know, schooling, all that kind of stuff. And, and what can we invest in that arena that will, you know, prevent people from having to, you know, meet me or whatever, getting addicted to drugs or, you know, feeling like they have to steal or just being violent, whatever, you know, that is a whole problem that I think will take just eons to solve because there's just so much, um, things that have to be a culture shift, I think, in order to, to change some of those things. Um, education needs to be better, all those things. Um, then once you get into the system, you're arrested for something. You know, I things that I've seen work for some people are things like drug courts where uh, instead of going to jail, you have to say you'll be clean for this amount of time and you, you go into a system that has work social workers that can help you get in a, a program and then help you get work and that kind of thing. And, you know, I've met some people that have uh, completed that and are on a great track to recovery and um, are working and just really great people. Um, it doesn't work for everybody. Some people stay clean for that year and then they're right back to where they started. Um, so I do think there's a place for diversion programs. Um, I do think that some people just need to learn the lesson of, okay, you know, you, you did something that deserves some jail time. Okay, now you're incarcerated and you're gonna you're gonna stay there for a while. But I also believe that once you're there, we should be working more on rehabilitation, um, jobs programs, um, mental health, uh, you know, getting clean, that kind of thing. And then post-incarceration, there should be much more emphasis on helping people re-enter society uh, as uh, working members of society, you know, productive members of society. So what does that mean? Like jobs programs, having uh, less, um, a, a better ratio of like parole officer to parolee so you can actually mentor them and get them back running. There should be more uh, businesses that are willing to hire felons and some sort of programming that helps them do that, uh, whether it's like a graduated scale on um, salary or whatever makes it less risky. Um, and all those things, because I think one thing we don't look at <clears throat> enough is recidivism as a as a metric. You know, people will talk about, oh, look at all these people being incarcerated for this or that, or, you know, we're doing so much better on this program, doing it this way by not, you know, prosecuting people for this amount of drugs or whatever. And then you ask about recidivism and nobody knows anything about it. For but to me, that's... Lexi, I'm sorry to interrupt for our listeners. Yeah, that's right. No, no, I, mean, I know what, I know what know it means, Tex, but like... recidivism means. What, what do you think it means, Tex? I know what it's it means. It's the tendency of a convicted criminal to re-offend. Hmm. That is... Sounds like your own words. Not at all Googled. Uh, <laughs> I no, saw you I typing away I, on the computer. I think that's a pretty good term that we should just use for a lot of what text is going on. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. repeat offender. Mm -hmm. Repeat offender. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with that mustache, uh, <laughs> chances could be high with that mustache. Today, today you know Lexi, it's uh, December 1st. 
Yeah, right? no, but I kept it for you because it's a cop <laughs> mustache. Why? So this is the last. I thought only we'll firemen. No, only firemen have poli- uh, mustaches. Uh, well, oh, this, no. the documentary Cops Super Troopers would say otherwise. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt your flow. Mm-hmm. And podcast. That's okay. Hosts. I totally so lost it now. So it's, it's firefighters, law enforcement officers, um, gay bikers, and mm-hmm. power athlete radio podcast hosts. And so guys, grow a mustache already. And oh, guys, biker. And guys, John, that, where's your mustache? And guys that like, well, I shaved it. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's December first. Uh, and also, guys that like to wear Hawaiian shirts open. Mm, yeah. Okay. Hawaiian shirt today is Hawaiian shirt day. What so. I like to call big fat party animals. Ah, okay. I'm in. So yeah, I'm fine with the mustache. Tex, I think yeah. you should you should wear that sucker for another year. No. <laughs> what? Today's the last day. Why? Well, what do you mean why? I, why? Tex, why you've got today? the like calico thing going on. It's like your mustache is a little lighter than your hair. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And then my yeah. beard is red. So I have mm-hmm. a blonde mustache, a red beard. And then a dark beard. You should just beard. bleach it all white. Mm. Oh, I was just going to just Bobby for Flay? Is that Bobby Flay that does that? No. What's uh, that guy's uh, name? Flay? Guy Ferreira. Guy Ferreira. What's the difference? They both flip burrs or whatever chefs do. People love that guy Ferreira. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, I like I him. think yeah. people don't like Bobby Flay. He seems like a kind of an a Who the hell is Bobby Flay then? Bobby Flay was He's on... another Iron um, Chef. Yeah, he but he was on Entourage. And you remember... He was uh, banging Ari's wife. Yeah, that's right. And Ari was, and uh, was like into it with like, it's fucking Bobby Flay. It's ringing a bell. And uh, I'm gonna have to Google this. Okay, yeah, Bobby well, Flay. Yeah, definitely. But everybody Guy loves Guy Fieri because he goes to that uh, diners, dumps, and mm-hmm. dish rags. You know, I've text since I've met you. You've always given me a Guy Fiero. Fie, what is it, Fiero? Fiero. Fiero guy. Guy Fiero vibe. I think we need to spike that hair a little bit, bleach it. And just pack you full of cheesesteaks. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a bad move. Well, I was thinking about... Sounds like a challenge. Yeah. The yeah. interview, Callie and I's interview that we had with John where we ate four cheesesteaks. Oh, job <sighs> interview. That was great. Yeah. Not podcast interview. No, job interview with John. Mm-hmm. Chased, chased with the well-born yeah. around and... Yeah. Did you, uh, did you talk to him at all? <laughs> no. He just kept running around. You never caught him. No. What happened was... Mouthful of cheesesteaks. Uh, we did a little, like, brewer. We, we were in Seattle. Oh, I'm sorry. We were in Philly, and uh, Dave Brewer showed up, and we wanted to, he, mm. he wanted to do a uh, tour of Philadelphia cheesesteaks. That's right. So I sat down, and I was like, okay, here's the best cheesesteak spots within the city as, a, you know, having lived in Philly. So I had Tex and them meet us at uh, Tony Luke's, which is right on uh, Front and Oregon, I believe. And um, great sandwiches, the whole deal. And uh, so we order and, like, when, you know, when in Philly, you just, you know, get the rolls. So I know Tex and Kelly were like, oh, like, is, are they punking us? I mean, obviously. This, this isn't is, paleo. This isn't paleo or gluten-free. 2012, so it's like the peak of the paleo and cross-fitness. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we're in Philly, so, like, all rules are off. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, like, they pull up and they're looking for parking. And in Philly, you just park wherever. Like, you park in the center, you park on the sidewalk, you just park wherever. And uh, so we get out, we have some cheesesteaks, and I was like, hey, follow me. I get in the car, <laughs> and uh, South Philly is kind of an interesting place to drive in that there, no police is going to pull you over at night for anything. So yeah. uh, stop actually, anything. yeah, stop actually means slow to observe pedestrian. That's it. So you basically do what's called like the Philly slow. Like you just basically like kind of tap your brakes and you blow through everything so you don't plow into anybody. And so I take off and I'm like straight up in South Philly mode where you're just fucking barreling down these roads. 
Nana McQuilkin jumps in with uh, with the hens trying to follow the laws, and I'm fucking gone. And they're like, where did this fucking guy go? Who and drove? Like, oh, Callie was driving. Yeah. yeah. And so we get to the next spot, and they were like, I, I mean, they totally thought they were fucking with us. And I'm like, I drive fast. And in South Philly, like, you just fucking keep your foot on the accelerator. Don't slow down. Because mm-hmm. if you slow down, somebody's going to fucking carjack you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So. Yada, yada, yada. So the real question is, did you get carjacked? Oh, no. Cali parked illegally outside of Pat's and Geno's. Like, parked over. So somebody had knocked over, like, a do not park sign. And Cali <laughs> parked over it. Like, on top of the sign. And then we had to just go run in and mm-hmm. grab two more cheesesteaks and, yeah. and wrap with Luke. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, three Tony total, Luke's, three total did. sandwiches, I yeah. think. Did, no, did, didn't, didn't we do gyms? Do we do gyms on South? I think we did three. So Tony Luke's, then Pats and Geno's. Oh, okay. And so then a bunch of ganglings at the hotel. Yeah, that's mm. right. Okay, we, we did a three trifecta. Man, I haven't had that many carbs in... <laughs> Since that day. <laughs> Since that day. Those, I think that was the last carb I had, John. Well, certainly the it, last, it's still in the system. Yeah, certainly the last um, like single day cheese whiz consumption record well, was oh, that day. Like, well, the, uh, <laughs> My the, stomach hurts just listening to you guys talk the, about this. The deal in South Philly is they always like, uh, you know, when you get your cheesesteak, they go with or without. And... If you're not from there, you don't know what fucking that means. You're yeah, like, whiz wit. Yeah, yeah. So, like, do you want it with whiz or do you want it without whiz? And these guys are like, what do you think? I'm like, ah, if you're going to be in South Philly, be a whiz. Thing, you, you go I, with the whiz. I, I, my cousins And are. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's a big vat of uh, fake cheese that they go, yeah. and it just fucking squirts on there. Oh and it is God. absolute fucking death. Yeah, yeah my, so I got it wit. Wit times three. Wit. And keep in mind here, Lexi, here's also the bonus. Ashley was with us that trip. So oh she was gosh. ordering sandwiches and I was eating her sandwiches too. So I was over to the three sandwich quota. Whoa. Oh, Can't yeah. let a good che- sando go and, to waste. And, uh, you know, and there, there were peppers in there. I'm not, I've, I've never been a big Pat's guy. Gino's has the, uh, the real spicy peppers. Yeah. Which actually make my mouth water right now. But yeah, that's, um, anybody that's listening to this that's uh, from Philly will know what I'm talking about. But uh, <laughs> I always feel like when you go, you got to kind of like hit like Tony Luke's, which is pretty damn good. But then you got to go to the tourist trap, which is Pat's and Gino's. But uh, Jim's on front and is usually or on, on South Street's pretty good. They but they do a lot of onions. Yeah, that was a good time. Good time. Uh, so how do we pivot back into this convo, Lexi? Uh, how about this one? That's something that this job will do to you guys. Uh, develop intestinal problems that you never thought you had. So What's up with that? I stress could, or just like quick food or what? Uh, I think stress, working nights, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's been terrible over the summer, but so you guys talking about are probably going to make my stomach hurt. Just, just the <laughs> idea of that. Yeah. It, uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm working, uh, I'm doing some, uh, some like remote coaching with a guy who's a, a cop in in uh, Colorado, and uh, like big thing we constantly talk about is um, you know the death of police officers, especially people that are you know within kind of your tip of the spear role is sitting. The amount of oh, sitting absolutely. that you guys do, mm-hmm. and I I've, I told him I'm like dude you gotta you gotta do something like I, they're they're following Jack Street, but I'm like dude you gotta do double or triple you know dead bugs you have to be constantly fighting this idea mm-hmm. of sitting and more importantly like sitting at long periods of time like you got to set a, an alarm where you know every 45 minutes to an hour you get up and you know shake your legs and the first question i asked him is like do you guys have nervous leg syndrome 
where like when you sit for too long, all of a sudden you kind of like flex your legs and your legs shake, which is kind of that neurological firing of, uh, you know, I've been sitting too fucking long. And uh, they're they're like, oh, yeah, all the time I get this kind of like shaky leg. And I'm like, dude, uh, that is the death of police officers is comes Mm -hmm. from the sitting. The sitting. There's also uh, physiologically, like when you're on the job, you're always on a little bit. Right. Like you're in your car or on a bike or whatever, and you have to be turned on. Right. So you're not at that like base calm level that a normal person would be. You, you know, your hormones are firing just enough to make you ready for that fight or flight, hopefully fight if you're a cop. Um, but I think that just constant level of that is, is difficult to deal with on a long-term basis. Add in, you know, a couple riots for, 30 days straight where you're sleeping two hours a night, you know, that, and that really will, uh, churn it up as well. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you really have to pay attention to your food time. I mean, you have to be, if you want to stay healthy in this career, you have to be a scientist about it and just stay on your, what you're eating, uh, when you're eating it. If you are working nights, figure out a way to sleep better. I mean, it's a, you really have to, to be honest. And unfortunately, it's just a lot of people don't feel like they have the time for that. So, so. what do you what do you like? What are the details of what you're doing? Because I feel like you're kind of alluding to the fact that you're tr- you're at least trying to crack the code. Right. So. So like specifically, how, how have you determined what to eat? How have you determined, you know, whatever mindfulness practices you're doing to get out of that that sympathetic state? Like what what are the like what are you, Lexi, doing that you've seen as successful? And I'd imagine there's a level of individuality to it. However, mm-hmm. like. The principles are the same. Like you said, get your sleep right, get your mind right, yeah. get your gut right, and, like, stay stay fit. Yeah, I, I wish I could say the code has been cracked already, but I'm still working on it. Um, I switched from a strictly night schedule to a little bit more of a swing shift uh, with my eventual goal to get on more of a day shift. Um, but we'll see how that goes. That seems to help a lot. Um, I got the aura ring, which gives me a lot of feedback on my sleep. You know how much I slept, how well I slept, where my recovery is, and you know I try to plan activity around that, <clears throat> and then just uh, play with different things prior to bedtime that help me sleep better. You know I go directly to sleep when I get home late at night. Um, I don't consume any food, alcohol, anything. Just sleep. That's my main focus when I get home. Um, and food, I'm I'm still like I've eliminated a ton of stuff. And I'm still, I still haven't cracked exactly what's going on, um, but it's a lot better. So, you know, just being cognizant of that. Um, and I think it's a, you know, you kind of have to test things out. I'm lucky enough to come from a background where I kind of know the things to, the you know, the main offenders to start right. eliminating. And, um, and mm. so it's trial and then training, like it has kept me sane, even, uh, I would prioritize training over sleep sometimes just cause it was what could keep my, my head just calm for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I do jujitsu and wrestling and um, boxing and that kind of stuff. And I love that, um, kind of human interaction sport type of th- thing that helps me keep my mind straight. Did, um, this is a kind of a little bit off base, but, uh, you made a good point. You were like, you know, you know, riots every night, two hours of sleep. I, I always wonder, uh, this is what you guys are paid to do. 
How are mm-hmm. the individuals that are riding every night, like, what are they doing for work? <laughs> how, are they, like, how are they coming in uh, so fresh? Well, like, that's there, the was, thing. there was this very odd uh, timing of the COVID, the COVID checks, and then just mass people having the ability to come out every night. Mm-hmm. Weird. I don't know. What, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I, so what you're saying is that the government COVID checks finance the destruction of Portland and Seattle. I mean, I'm not saying that. Okay. You're well, saying I'm, that. But. I'm saying that. <laughs> but it, it, it just felt like uh, it was funny because I like I, I'm always um, I'm always amazed by one or two things like one. And I know this is kind of weird, but I'm, I'm always interested to see how like the riots uh, like kind of take shape and how there's people that are just there to protest who are these kind of like, you know, isolated individuals like, like uh, well intended. Yeah. Like free free know. agents that show up with their sign. And then there's people in it that are there for like, you know, the guy that should have the sign like I'm just here for the violence. And then there's other people mm-hmm. that have an agenda. And it's really interesting to, like, to watch the videos and see the different people and, like, how they're dressed similarly, how people are trying to dress like those other people. And it's just really interesting to see, like, you know, you probably have a group of agitators and a large group of people that are just looking to be there. And I just always wonder, I'm like, they're, um, and I'll just give you a little example. I remember when, uh, when the, the lockdown started and they, they had riots, they were having riots here in Austin. Um, on a like Saturday or, or sorry, it was either Saturday or Sunday around noon. Uh, I was like, hey, let's. Um, oh, it was my birthday was coming up, so I would always go down to Salt and Time and buy these big steaks, and then we cook them, and that's kind of what we're doing for the birthday. So I drive down at about noon, Salt and Times right downtown, and I, I go in, I get the steaks, and I'm leaving. I'm at the stoplight, and I realize like I'm in the middle of this whole thing. You know, there's like you know people with masks, protesters. I mean, like you know people are fucking setting shit on fire. And I'm like, oh, God, this reminds me of living in L.A. I, like, rolled the windows down, put my gun on the dash, and uh, started driving around. And as I kind of, like, got pushed around because they blocked everything off, I'm at a stoplight. And all of a sudden, this, like, you know, newish F-150 four-door truck pulls up next to me that's beat to shit. And there's six dudes, three in the front, three in the back, all black hoods, black masks, and everything. And, like, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you could see the Antifa kind of wavy-looking thing on their stuff. So they're all insignia and I like pull up and they all look at me and I look at them and I'm like, oh, Jesus. And sure enough, they made a quick left turn, parked it, jumped out, and they were uh, delivering pallets of bricks. Mm-hmm. So they, they literally pulled out a pallet, stacked all the bricks, went to the next one. And so these guys were literally like arming on corners with things to throw at the mm-hmm. police and setting this whole deal up. I mean, very calculated, very uh, strategic in how they were doing this. And I'm like, uh, you know, I can't believe that these guys are just you know, uh, good-hearted freedom fighters that all kind of banded together to, to try to do this. It looked financed. It looked uh, put in place. But I just, it, it, it's pretty interesting. And I always love watching all the videos to be able to see the mix of different people all kind of melting into one. Yeah, it, it uh, especially on the, the really large-scale ones in the beginning, there was definitely, um, I'd say, like, three different groups of people the people that were down there to, you know, protest peacefully and they may have hated us, but all they were going to do is scream at us. They, you know, weren't intended on being violent or anything. Um, and then you'd have uh, people who were what they call black blocks. So they get, like you described, they put on the black clothing, they work as a group, they're coordinated, they have radios um, and they are the ones that are, you know, doing the violent acts, whether it's throwing rocks at us or, um, you know, they've got the lasers, they try to shine your eyes and all sorts of different things. Molotov cocktails, they got, you know, to that level. Um, And they will work behind the people who 
are the peaceful protesters. I think I mentioned this before, and and that is one of their tactics, right? So um, they're using that shield, right? And a lot of people that are there won't necessarily see what's going on behind them. So they're seeing the reaction of the cops to what's going on behind them. And they're feeling like, well, that's unjust because I'm not doing anything, but they don't realize that things are happening behind them. Um, and then uh, like, especially on that first night, all of that, we finally cleared all that out. Um, and then the looters came in and they were a completely different group of people. They weren't there during the protests. They weren't there in Black Bloc, just people, opportunists, right? The city's in chaos. Police are stretched completely beyond their ability to deal with any of this. You know, we had people driving their cars into the storefronts, pulling everything they could out of it and driving away. I mean, it was just constant. It was, oh, well, there's someone looting, there's someone. And it was just, it, it, at one point, we just kind of stood back after an arrest and people were just passing us with new backpacks and stuff. and. It's just like, it's completely overwhelming. But so those were sort of the three different people is like the protesters who are peaceful, but angry, the people who are intent on creating chaos, and then the opportunists that come in and kind of sweep up what they can. Who's the worst? I mean, I, I like the, uh, the looters, uh, like, uh, I think the people out there protesting have a kind of a social feeling like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part. This is like, you know, my opportunity to be in the 60s, you know, so I'm going to mm-hmm. do, you know, part of my, you know, social justice warrior. This is my social revolution. Then you have like the, you know, Antifa Marxist assholes who, you know, believe in anarchy, um, you know, but at least they believe in something, whereas the looters are just fucking opportunistic capitalists, you know, that are looking to destroy shit and fucking come up. And I think those yeah. people are the one are, are the worst of the bunch. Well, I was thinking after that first night that they're going to get a real lesson in capitalism because they're going to all go to offer up and try to sell their Gucci handbag and realize there's like a hundred other of them and the <laughs> price is going to go <laughs> way down. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, it, it's all frustrating. Um, it, it was all very, very hard. I, I'd say the, the most frustrating part to me was just the general level of chaos that um that was being perpetrated allowed for a lot of things to happen that were just tragic you know people being killed inside the shop uh people getting run over on the freeway like it just was like tragedy after tragedy after tragedy that just i mean going back to the leadership thing is like when are we going to have an adult in the room that's going to say this is enough and explain why it's enough you know i mean obviously you may not like it but i'm going to do my best to be empathetic with your situation, but also tell you, like, at the end of the day, this is how it's going to happen. And I will do my best to explain why. But, you know, I think we could see a lot less of those uh, tragedies have happened. So mm-hmm. what was uh, the feeling of going? Wasn't it Chaz? And then it went to chop. Yes, that was uh, seeing that play out was absolutely insane. Like seeing like the <laughs> autonomous zone. And then there was like yeah. there was a warlord. <laughs> and I'm like, like you got to be kidding me with this thing. This is insanity. Yeah, he was a rapper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he still is. But yeah. I guess I don't is, is it like two chains or chains or? I, uh, Raz Simone. Yeah, some somebody yeah. forwarded me his Instagram and uh, uh, it's just uh, like, uh, yeah. Well, I yeah. know he's a rapper because he named Chaz out, like he could rhymes with Raz. His name, smart. <laughs> oh, 
Raz Jazz. That's humor, John. Oh, I I know it's funny. I I can tell. He he Googled he Googled that one too. Well, well, uh, Tex likes to laugh before the punchline. (laughs) So you know it's funny. (laughs) So I I know the joke's coming when all of a sudden he's smirking over there and I can hardly see his teeth through his you know red mustache. That's a good one, Tex. Good job. but yeah, that was that was just insane and a good again just like tragic because we really couldn't do anything. I mean, politics and then just the safety issues of it. Like they're just we were basically just castrated for lack of a better word uh, as far as dealing with stuff and stuff that you know like a lot of the shootings in there to me are very equal to like the things we see happen outside of bar closing, which I used to work a lot. Like you'll be outside a bar, people are coming out drunk. You know, you see, oh, shit, they're going to the trunk of their car. That's not good. We know what that means, you know. And we've had the ability just by being there on a lot of occasions to stop those things, right, to intercede before uh, the gun comes out or, you know, get it or whatever, like just be there to break up the fight. Um, But unchecked, unchecked, like having no presence within that area, you know, the I think they just kept getting more drunk and whatever and tempers flared and these things happened. And it was just completely tragic to me. Um, actually my, my fiance, uh, was working, he does private security and he was, uh, working for one of the major, uh, media companies as their protection. So he went inside the chop on, uh, I think three or four days. So he, he was giving me a lot of insight into the atmosphere and how it sort of changed during the day and the night. Um, it was actually kind of interesting. He ended up meeting a guy in there that is, uh, that I've continued conversations with. Um, he's a local teacher and a football coach actually within our, uh, community in Seattle. And, um, he went in there with, I think one idea, I can't speak for him, but just of what the whole movement was and, you know, and then in talking to my fiance and then getting hooked up with me and some other friends, we've, we've actually sparked this conversation where we're trying to make like an actual income or impact, pardon me, into the, uh, their community and their actual stakeholders in Seattle community and their kids are, you know, underserved in a lot of, uh, him and one other coach. And so we've started these conversations and he's like, from what I understand, you know, not down with the defund police. He wants more of us and actually interacting with the community. And, um, you know, he and the other coach are willing to give back to the Seattle police in, in ways to like, help us understand their community more and vice versa. So I think if one good thing came out of the chop, that is it is actually that relationship that mm-hmm. um, got sparked in there. And are there other, I mean, I know you're personally involved in this particular scenario. Have other situations like positive sil- silver linings come out of this that maybe just haven't yet kind of consolidated and found a synergy? Um. Well, that, that's the biggest one I can think of is just right. starting that to develop that relationship. Um, I mean, I think we're going to be dealing with the effects of this year for probably decades, just, you know, losing so many people. And mm-hmm. um, is the community you know, realizing it? Like, you know, have, have at first there was kind of like an emotional reaction. Yes, there needs to be something done. Let's do it. Boom, do it. And then they're like, you know, now maybe. Well, just on a superficial level, I mean, they burned and looted everything. So, I mean, like, are those major stores or those chains or those small businesses ever going to go back? 
And then, so now you're in a situation where now it looks like a mm-hmm. fucking burned down ghost town. And, you know, like, what is insurance going to come in and cover that? I mean, are they covered for looting and for rioting? Um, you know, that position alone. And then you think about with Seattle PD now all of a sudden uh, people leaving, transferring out. I mean, it's not like some there's a young recruit in the academy who's dying to become a Seattle PD. So now all of a sudden they have a huge problem with trying to backfill and find new officers. So, I mean, it's kind of a both sides for like not only the police department, but just from like a financial community. And that's a superficial level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's it's hard because a lot of the businesses that uh, operate in Seattle, the owners may not live in Seattle, so they're not taken as as stakeholders. I think in the same way that um, residents are, which I think is a mistake, obviously. But um, you know, it seems like some businesses have bounced back, and then we've got the COVID stuff, and a lot of businesses are gone for good. There's definitely a large amount of community in Seattle that's behind us and want to see us be able to do our job but they're also I think Seattle in general is very um, empathetic city so they they want to see us do our jobs in a compassionate way and unfortunately a lot of the things that were put out in the media were just all focused on on us and you know maybe selectively edited or things just seemed you know maybe we made some mistakes or whatever but it um and I'm talking specifically with the protest and dealing with the crowds and that kind of thing and, and the uses of force. And then they just get blasted out there. And uh, so I think there's a bit of trust in some of our community members that we need to get back um, just based on on those things. Um, yeah. So it's just it's a it's a mixed bag and it definitely depends on what neighborhood you're in. And one of the topics you wanted to cover was community policing. Is community policing re- what you represented with you being around the bar and preventing this or the 20 year bike cop that everybody knows his name is that representative of community policing so i think that term is often misused and i the thing that um that i'd like to see with sort of the leadership stuff i'm getting into is is making sure that every officer has that onus on them of of being a community driven person um so I think what's happened in a lot of departments, so community policing was one of, in 2015, um, they had the president's task force on 21st century policing, and they came up with all these different pillars that were recommendations for departments, and community policing was certainly in there and one of the pillars. So a lot of uh, departments, I think the way they've dealt with that is they make, um, they make sort of different units that are, this is our community policing unit, you know? And it, in my belief, sort of separates it from your common patrol officer or your common um, patrol sergeant. And it's like, well, I don't have to deal with that problem because we've got the community police group that'll go out and do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So in my mind, it should be, it's one of those leadership things. You take the moments that you have that you're sitting all day. I mean, this goes back to health too, right? Get out of your car, go talk to somebody, you know, like try to have those positive interactions um, with the community, find out what their needs are, uh, focus your attention on that. At the end of the day, sometimes it feels impossible because there's so many com- community issues that come up and you want to be able to do everything. But if each person you know, showed that ownership and showed that desire to help, I think that goes a long way. And um, just the community's feeling represented. They know who their officers are. They know who their sergeants are. You know, um, there's not that removal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's 
it's one of those catchphrase terms that great it means all this stuff but if you don't take it personally and and make those efforts yourself it's you know it's sort of a lost cause it just gets tied up in bureaucracy i think yeah because everyone's man i'm just thinking of my interactions with police have been predominantly <laughs> not i would say not out of be due to positive scenarios right it's been <laughs> maybe due to mischief maybe driving a little too yeah. fast, taking a Philly approach to driving in Naperville. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if those cops were not prickly, you might uh -huh. have decided, to, I mean, like, I sometimes think that, like, uh, cops coming hard at you, for most people, mm -hmm. is probably a deterrent. Like, I'm not going to do this because I don't want that cop to come hard I at me. I would agree. And like, but I guess my point being, Lexi, is for most people, I think interactions with police is surrounding, like, uh, pretty tumultuous, tumultuous scenarios. Absolutely. So like that's uh, that's what you automatically associate it with where, you know, when you see the lights flicker in your rearview mirror, you get that body buzz like, fuck, your stomach drops. Like, what did I do? Oh, God, here you we go. You have no front license plate. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> but then the it one. turns out they pass you. It's not even for you. And you're like, oh, thank God I didn't have to deal with that. And I think what yeah. I'm curious, you know, so then a community policing initiative comes into play where now you're, you have more interaction and it's, it's positive interactions and you realize you're dealing with people who are enforcing laws. And like, since then though, I've gotten to know police officers through, you know, the podcast and just our friends and Lexi, you and Callie, and you realize they're just people that are going into a real, like every situation they assume is the shittiest situation or they might not survive it. So like, with the community policing paradigm, kind of like you, teaching the cross of football seminar. <laughs> do you think, yes. Lexi, Lexi, like, does that lower the guard of the police where, like, they might be not as alert going into conflict scenarios? Or is, like, do you feel that y'all have the capacity there to know when you're on a call, alert's got to be high? When you're community policing, trust has got to be high. Yeah, well, we should. And I mean, I think that would go back to training, right? Because it's not just going to be something built in for your 21 year old that has no life experience, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to teach them how to do that. And, and, you know, maybe create those scenarios where they have the ability to decipher between the two. I always say there's a fine line between officer safety and just being a dick, mm -hmm. you know, and finding that line is important, I think. And a lot of new officers have some trouble finding it, but I mean, you want to be safe and you want to make sure that you're keeping yourself and your other uh, partners safe, but you can also have genuine interactions once you've deemed things are safe, but, you know, taking it out of uh, going back to the community thing, I think it goes uh, a long way with the community, but it also goes a long way with officers, right? Mental health struggles are huge in the, um, in our profession because we just see the most heinous shit day after day after day. Um, and it's, it is, if you don't have a way to deal with that, it's, you know, it can get out of hand. Um, but one thing I always say is that, you know, we don't have to look for the negative interactions. They're going to find us, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to answer that 911 call and you're going to see something terrible, or you're going to have the person with their phone in your face mm -hmm. telling you how racist you are, you know, for, and you're just answering a 911 call, you know, you're going to find those things that make your blood boil, you know? However, you have to look for the positive interactions. You have to actually like be proactive in finding them. Mm -hmm. um, so just as taking a community kind of outlook on something where you're getting out of your car and you're not on a 911 call, just as that's great for the community, it's great for us because you start to have like, okay, I'm not, it's not me against them, you know, mm -hmm. that's 
it's me and them and you know i can have fun times with these people in my community and you know all those things so i think it's just as important for officers as it is for um the community mm -hmm. do you have a routine in place like you mentioned once if you're working nights you just go home and go straight to bed but do you have like yeah. a a mental meditation practice or something to bring you back down into the right parasympathetic mind. Similarly to that question, uh, Lexi, yeah. also when someone is jamming a phone in your face, do you have a system Serenity there to, to like keep cool? So I rub, I rub my earlobes and I say woosa. <laughs> I'll tell you, I mean, that Mike Lowry. Mm -hmm. uh, um, at this point, like I, I'm so used to it. I mean, it's one of those things like, I mean, I can, I can feel it when I'm getting aggravated. Like I literally feel that creeping up my neck and like that, that feeling. And so I just have to recognize it and then take a deep breath and try to, if I need to step away, someone else can come in. Um, I try to ignore it for the most part. Uh, Cause I don't want to be, you know, that next viral, like mm -hmm. cop loses or shit. Sure. you know video but um if i have a chance to talk to somebody and they don't have you know they're not filming me and it's after a call i say hey you know you want to you want to talk about what you think you're seeing here or whatever and, and they're willing to talk i'm more than happy to do that mm -hmm. but that's very rare so do you think social media has uh spurred this more that everybody's looking to be the uh you know the somehow like you know i'm going to film something that's going to put me in some viral place and you know I, I, I sometimes wonder like before social media if people were as willing to you know pull out a phone and video stuff I mean I, I was thinking yeah, like like I'm the Reginald Denny beating uh, when he you know slowed down his semi and got pulled out and got fucking his eye popped out but uh, the filming came from uh, um, all the clips you see that was from a, a news helicopter so like you know people necessarily I mean really the first time somebody pulled out a video camera and videoed anything was the Rodney King at least, at least mm -hmm. I, at all, at, yeah, like as far as I remember. Recent history. Yeah. But now it's like every week you can rely on a multi-vantage point cell phone. Yeah, that you can montage. stream. That's like, I mean, you got streaming, you got this, you got video. Vantage I mean, it's point. like, what is it, like, uh, you know, 24 megapixel, you know, cell phone camera that you can do mm -hmm. this. I mean, it's pretty amazing uh, to see how, how, how quick people are. I mean, um, I, I, didn't, I don't think I told you guys this. Uh, did I tell you that, that that dude had a stroke in front of me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was at the, uh, I went in to buy a, a gift, a bottle of booze at um, BevMo or whatever, uh, Twin Liquors. And the guy in front of me had uh, like a TIA, like a seizure. And uh, mm -hmm. like, like literally like fell down right into the, like the display. So rolled him on his side, you know, like got his head up, um, you know, held his arms down because he was kind of like freaking out and clawing himself, bit his cheek, eyes rolled back, started, you know, trying to mm -hmm. swallow his tongue. So we got him on his side. And uh, I was yelling at people to dial 911 and people just straight walked out of the store. Like just, I could hear the, the checkout, like nobody was there. I, I actually, as I was laying on the dude, called 911 and that was who responded. And like, I had like just people's inability to deal with that type of stuff. And I'm really glad that I didn't look up and see some asshole just videoing it. So I think in those situations, man, people are uh, people either, you know, don't want to get involved, don't want to be part. They just either want to, you know, video it or kind of be removed from it like a sterile situation. I think uh, there's a lot of things going on there. Like, I think some people have a hard time understanding what they're seeing sometimes like that. There's sort of that. um like positivity bias, oh, no, you know, nothing's happening. I can just like 
walk out, it'll be fine. Or they don't even see it. I mean, I was walking into Target with my stepdaughter the other day and this guy gets out of a car and something drops out of his pocket. And I look down and it's a fixed blade knife, like this long and curved. And I just sort of like, you know, pushed her over, get out of, you know, his vicinity. And I asked her, I was like, did you see what he dropped? And she's like, oh, he dropped something? You know, just completely like, you know, not looking for that danger, um, which is fine. Most people are like that. But, it, you know, I think people, A, don't know what they're seeing. They're not educated enough to know what a stroke is or, you know, they want to become involved. They don't feel it's their business. Um, a lot of times people will call 911 after like 30 minutes of seeing something because they're going like this in their head. They're like, did I, did I see what I think I saw? No, no, I'm pretty sure I just saw someone get robbed. Mm -hmm. No, no, it could have, it could have been this other thing. Could have just been a couple arguing, you know, and they're like arguing with themselves of whether they should call 911 or not. Cause they don't want to bother 911, whatever. And I think people just tend to be a little bit more, uh, they want to make those situations seem more positive, I think in a weird way, rather than understanding there are a lot of really bad things that happen. Yeah, shit happens. Well, have you all yeah. heard of the Kitty Genevieve case from the 70s? So a courtyard in New York, woman was raped and then murdered, but in the middle of a courtyard and nobody, zero people called 911. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's so a, a famous social yeah. studies or like Well, I mean, but, but there, there was kind of a deal back then where it was like, um, you know, people were more worried about what might happen to them if they report people because of the unsavory characters. Whereas I feel now people feel em emboldened almost in the opposite way to video everything because mm -hmm. they don't know. I mean, uh, like I, you know, the age old, you know, uh, snitches get stitches, but now it seems like uh, it's almost worth getting stitches if you can somehow get a viral video and get a million followers on a social media platform. Everybody's a snitch now. Shit. It's uh, a, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that there are definitely some people who really believe that they are doing something incredibly bold and they are saving that person. You know, I mean, you could be on the most mundane call talking to a guy. You got a 911 call about him. He's drunk. You're trying to figure out just a solution to get him in a safer spot. There's no real like maybe he's talking loud because he's drunk or, you know, you're just back and forth trying to get. the. And then all of a sudden you see someone across the street filming and they have the, this look of terror on their face like if i leave this spot you're going to beat this guy up and there's going to be no video evidence you know and i think they truly truly believe that i mean whereas we we record everything we've got yeah, the you guys have, have body cameras. camps yeah mm -hmm. you guys have body cams you should yell at them like i got a body cam don't worry we'll be fine yeah well we often do like i'm recording you yeah i'm recording too like it, we're good mm -hmm. but it's like, just like here's my lapel say hi uh, it, but it's, it's, I really believe that people in their heart of hearts believe that. And they're mm -hmm. just at this, they're, they're so tied up in this um, narrative that's been put out there that they, they really think that they're doing like a good by standing there and, yeah, that and makes, filming. That makes a lot of sense. I've never really thought of it that way. Like I can see that psychology playing out. I mean, but as we know, it's unfounded, Like you know, every, you guys are monitored as much mm -hmm. as that camera from the third person. So, but that's, an, I never really thought of it that way. You know, one thing I think of John with like that, the situation with that you had at uh, Twin Liquors is I think my natural reaction would be afraid to get 
implicated in some sort of wrongdoing and somehow get caught up in like a civil situation. Uh, well, your CPR certification, mm-hmm. you are protected. I am yeah. with that certification. Uh-huh. So oh, he, I uh, did not know that. Um, did we learn that? So my dad had a TIA. <laughs> uh, my dad had a, had a few TIAs, yeah. you know? And so like as soon as I saw that guy go down and I saw like I had that historical knowledge, mm-hmm. like seeing the way he was re- reacting, like that was uh, – Straight up the exact same thing that yeah, happened yeah. to my dad. And I just know you got to get them on their side, uh, prop up their heads so they don't swallow their tongues, and mm-hmm. then hold their arms down so they don't claw and, like, hurt themselves. He bit his lip, so he's bleeding. And you just got to kind of lay there until it subsides. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it took, you know, five, six minutes of him, like, doing it for his eyes to go from, like, rolled back in his head to all of a sudden being able to realize Come back this. Too. Yeah. And then I asked him uh, his name, and he's like, he said his name was John. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's my name too. We are going to make the, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to make it out of this. You're going to be okay. You know? And like, all of a sudden he realized like, uh, what happened? And then, yeah. you know, and I'm looking, laying on the guy calling 911 and I'm looking around and as I'm looking around, cause I'm yelling at people to call 911, people are just fucking checking out and I can hear the beep like of them, mm-hmm. you know, of the, uh, cashiers just checking people out and I'm looking around and I'm like, fuck, this dude almost just died on the thing and people are trying to check out to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been pretty extensive cases where uh, good Samaritans have gone in and tried to help people and maybe it not have gone well, but at the end of the day, the law protects the people that are mm-hmm. like intent. Like you're not trying to get into this situation to hurt somebody. Right. Like, um, you know, like a, a car goes in, guy jumps in the water, saves one person, the other person, and then those people sue him for wrongful death. And you're like, well, I saved one person. Right. Yeah. And I think or that's... Or you crack a rib or they don't make it yeah. if you're getting yeah. CPR. Yeah. yeah. And, and you break a rib right. and then they, they try to sue you for breaking a rib. And you're like, yeah. dude, I, you know, so like there's laws in place to protect uh, people doing the right thing. But just like it's still to this day, man, like as I turned around and I'm yelling, Call nine one one, and I'm trying to dial, and I hear people checking out. I hear beep beep, and like fucking just people get getting their booze. So I pulled up. It this. is oh, sorry, crazy what? No, I was gonna say it is. It's crazy when you're dealing with like a life or death situation, and the reactions of people around you. Like, yeah. oh, I can't walk through here. Why not? Oh, because we're trying to save this guy's life, or yeah. you know, because a shooting just happened here. Like, it's just. Yeah. It's mind blowing, and it's almost like you don't feel like you're in reality when it's happening yeah. to you. Like, you know, you realize the severity of the in- incident, John, but the people around you just were completely oblivious to it. And it's just this, like, it's this mind fuck of like, why can't you? Well, I, so on the see, quick, right? quick note, John, on that the mind fuck the the kitty case. So there is all this. It's from '64. Yeah. Now there's something called the bystander effect, bystander apathy. So, so much social psychology has exists yeah. based off what we're speaking of. Yeah. So, so like, and then that was, uh, you know, like a huge change was in the social structure where now I, me as the individual, and I really go back to the, the Rodney King thing where here was this one individual, uh, you know, that, I mean, the LAPD had a, a very, very real policy of you run, we're going to catch a, you know, you're going to catch a beat, which, I just kind of always assumed if you run from the police and they catch you, they were going to beat you up. Like, that was kind of the social contract. And, like, now people are like, I ran. That's uh, the gamble. Like, yeah, if you run and they catch you, you're probably going to catch a beat. Like, that's just part of the deal. And I think I've heard cops say, if you run, I'm going to beat you. You know, I mean, I, I used to work in San Francisco in, uh, you know, downtown south of Market at this club. And, like, people that ran from the police got hawked. And, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens to them. But, um it know. is no longer like that. I would just like to note. Yeah, no. <laughs> but I, I always figured, like, uh, you know, that that was part of the deal. Like, if you're going to run or be an asshole, you're probably going to get what you deserve. But I don't know. Maybe that's a different generation. 
I think it's a different generation. And it just, we would just never, with all the oversight and being on camera, it's just so far outside of the policy. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of tie it back to training. That's really where it is so important these days for us to train our asses off in combatives because you could chase somebody for four blocks, catch them, and still be expected to do to not beat their ass, right? To to do what you can to get them into custody safely, take a breath, and and then treat them with kindness and dignity, right? Like that is the expectation, and it is an incredibly high bar to meet because if you're not fit enough to run four blocks, if you don't have the cognitive space to think about, okay, I caught him, now what can I do? You know, what are my tactics? Because you're so exhausted from the run, you know? And then once you, if they're struggling a little bit, but if they're not like actually fighting you, you know, you get them into cuffs, like to have the wherewithal to not go crazy, not say something, not put your freaking uh, knee on the wrong place, like on their neck or some bullshit, you know, like you have to have such a high level of training to deal with that kind of situation. And we just don't, I mean, we don't really get time for it. And then when the options are presented and you're going to do it on your own time, not a lot of people take that option, right? Mm. So what drew you to start combat sports and taking this into your own hands? Well, I've done different martial arts for a long time. Like that preceded my, I actually preceded my fitness career. That's what got me into going to school for kinetics and all that stuff. Um, But I just, I personally love it. I like the challenge of it. I like that it teaches me my limitations. It keeps me humble. Um, I, I'm very competitive just in general. So that helps me get that competitive drive out. Um, uh, so it, it kind of came already for me, but it, you know, being on um, teams that we did get in a lot of scuffles because of the nature of what we were doing, just realizing that it, it makes a huge difference being competent in that area, especially I'm a, you know, I'm a smaller female officer and, you know, just knowing body mechanics and that kind of thing is, is huge when dealing with that. Um, so. Do you guys remember in the movie Bloodsport when uh, Forrest Whitaker and the other older cop or uh, FBI guy, they try to take uh, Frank Dukes into, into custody? And he like takes them on that run all over Hong Kong and they're like falling over stuff and they're running through boats and those guys are dying yes. and they fall in the water. Uh-huh. I always in think suits. In, in suits. Uh, yeah. and, and he's in like uh, kind of like uh, Z Cabarici pants and a tank top <laughs> with like a high, high waisted uh-huh. and he's like doing all this stuff. I always like uh, whenever I think of like pursuits for law enforcement, I kind of always think of that. That's yours? Like, oh, I uh, think it's super bad. <laughs> the fastest kid alive. <laughs> no, but, but but I think about like those dudes were in suits, totally not prepared, you know, to run on boats in mm-hmm. in in Hong Kong, and uh, you know that's kind of that pursuit. You know, what what if you got the Frank Dukes in a tank top and Z Cavaricci pants? I'm trying to think of a police uh, foot chase movie. I'm coming up with uh, Terminator. Uh, 007. Oh, with the. The parkour oh, scene yeah. in the casino. Yes, oh, that was such a good scene. Yes. The dude that's like a monkey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the yeah. bomb maker. Uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, uh-huh. God, that, that is a good damn scene. That's that's yeah. what I imagine Lexi's police chases are like. Like, in just like parkour, acrobatics. I, to I'm, going, I'm going with Callie with and no Lexi. Heavy, no heavy breathing at I'm the end I'm kind of going with Callie and Lexi as Forrest Whitaker and the old guy <laughs> chasing Frank Dukes. Like okay. I have a boats. great... I have a great Callie and Lexi foot pursuit story for you guys. Oh, Lord. 
Can we say it live? Of course. Yeah, I, yeah. it's. So I was dealing with this guy. Uh, it was pretty normal, but I was starting to get some indications that he was probably had a warrant or something. I was trying to get his name and everything because he was doing the like side to side thing. And my partner, which was not Callie, was in the car. So it's just me and this guy. And all of a sudden he takes off on me, just runs. He's, he's stripping off his backpack and his layers. And uh, Callie was close. I see her car come. He's running one direction. She comes. We're running against the the Macy's, so there's a bunch of windows and stuff. And I see Callie coming. She's about to beeline right for him, right from the side. The classic pincher move, right? And uh, I'm like, yes, I've been waiting for this moment. I'm going to see Callie just football tackle this guy. And I'm running behind just sort of like, all right. He sees her coming. He dives under her. She does her football tackle right into the windows of Macy. It's like a bug. Oh, no. <laughs> and then we tie him up and we give him in handcuffs and everything. And you know, it was it was fine. Um, he actually turned out to be a, a pleasant person to deal with. But uh, <laughs> he just thought he could take that opportunity to try to get away. But oh, it was so funny. Were you guys talking shit to him? Um, no, we were actually got a little bit of an attaboy because we were um, cool, calm, and collected, and uh, saying things like, "Hey, man, stop fighting! It's over. We got gotcha. you." You know, like mm -hmm. so. you, you don't remember in uh, the movie Colors with uh, Sean Penn and oh, uh, um, Robert Duvall? You remember he he like runs that kid down and he starts talking shit to him. He's like, "I caught your ass, you punk bitch!" Mm -hmm. He's like, "You're gonna think you're gonna," and that's when they started calling him Pac Man. Uh -uh. Oh, dude, that's a that's a great one from the movie. You guys never saw the movie Colors about the L.A. gangs? So I mean, I feel like, like like that was like an no. '80s like staple. Uh, oh, where, experienced cop and his rookie partner. Yeah, that's the, the first line I'm already in. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> the one where, where he says he's like, "Hey, there's two bulls standing up on a hill," and uh, the you know the young bull looks at Daddy Bull and says, "Hey, let's run down there and uh, fuck them." Yeah, uh, bang one of these cows, and the Daddy Bull looks at him and goes, "Why don't we walk down there and bang them all?" So that was kind of the the story that they used in that one, but oh, yeah. directed by Dennis Hopper. Oh, dude, mm. this is a dude. Colors was a absolute like cultural icon, and when it hit, well, what year was it? Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Yep. So I remember when that movie hit, we went and saw it. So Lexi, when you're in a foot pursuit and you have the perp, right? That's is that the proper police lingo? Perp. Sure. Suspect. When the perp when the perp does like a low dive. And the officer goes high because she doesn't know how to lower her shoulder. Probably bent at the waist. You know what I mean? Just big bent over waist at the waist. bender. Hensman is a big waist didn't bender. Didn't drop the hips, but just waist bend. Went right over this the, the perp. Like, do you then after things calm down, are you like, hey, that was a pretty good move? Like, do you compliment the the acrobatic? Or does she look over and she's like, I thought he was going to do this, <laughs> and he yeah. did this, <laughs> and yeah. I did this, and you're like, yeah, this like, uh, yeah. probably. Probably a little bit more of the latter. But oh, yeah, yeah. oh, man. I thought you were going to zig when you zagged, but he zagged yeah. and then I zigged. Uh, it happens. We've oh, She's going to kill me. But we've <laughs> all had moments like that. I mean, I had a guy run away from me in handcuffs the other day. So. Oh, yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> As, That'll uh, happen. That will happen. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure that. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Van Holt told me he's like, man, there is really nobody faster than a dude who is about to go to jail that that thinks that he might not go to jail if he can get away from you. He's like, let me tell you, like that. It is impressive. Yeah. Uh -huh. He's like, that adrenaline yeah. spike hits, and those dudes could be the fucking beat you Bolt in 100. 
Yeah. He's like, I've seen dudes oh, yeah. cover more distance in shorter periods of time that would blow your fucking mind to the point mm-hmm. where we stopped and been like, we should get this guy on the U.S. track team. I can only imagine. I get like... And, I, and Van Holt's so funny. I've, I've <laughs> asked that to people before. I've asked them, like, why are you out here? You could be on, like, an adult track team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are talented. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Jade, Jade has a pretty funny story uh, where he and Van Holt were on patrol, and this dude took off, and he was smoking him, and Jade actually commandeered a kid's bicycle. <laughs> Like he was on like a BMX bike chasing him, and he had like Van Holt's like uh, story is like as he's running chasing this dude, he sees Jade go by on this BMX bike, and he's like, to this day, I thought he was gonna pull like a fucking bunny hop and go rat on me. <laughs> oh fuck, it's so funny. I hope Jade's listening to this. Oh, that's funny, man. Well, so I was on after being patrol partners with Callie, I was on a bike team, pedal bikes, mm-hmm. and one that was one of the biggest things I had to get used to is like someone takes off on you you get your ass back on the bike and you chase them on the bike because you have a much higher likelihood mm-hmm. of catching them if you're on that bike. So Callie was um, on a pedal bike? No, I was. Oh, you Callie were on the pedal bike. In the car. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think Callie yeah. tried out, but didn't, couldn't make, didn't like finish the O course or something. No, oh, she did it. She, she's, She's trained. She can work it. But oh, okay. I was on a full time. I was on a full time. You know, I'm so. surprised after her uh, when she got rid of her car and then just rode her bicycle around Newport mm-hmm. for those couple of months. Yeah. But <laughs> see, Callie, like I, I picture Callie is like a pretty effective, medium intensity straight rider. Like in terms of like obstacles, I'd imagine like the O course is up, down, around. And then you got to kind of like carry and shimmy. Like I don't see her doing a There's lot of There's like, a lot tactics. of slow speed. Yeah, it's not. Not easy, but you get to be actually you, for me, I realized like how good of a rider I'd become over the two and a half years I had been on a bike, just dealing with all of those riots. Cause there's times where we were trying to maneuver through people and like clouds of gas and you're in a freaking gas mask riding up the hills of Seattle mm-hmm. and you're like, Oh, I stayed on my bike. I didn't fall. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, It'd be even cooler if you had like a battering ram on the front you could just like drop it down like a lance. Like well, well that's what I found interesting. Lexi was filling me in at Summer Strong, how like when it does come to ride control and crowd control, the the like the, the bike becomes an extension, yeah. right? That becomes the extension of like kind of crowd control. And then I never realized it until a lot of this stuff, you know, yeah. did hit social media. And man, like the tactics, they're pretty ballsy. Like, mm-hmm. and I guess it just, if you were in that position, You've probably never, like, on the other side, not the law enforcement side, but maybe the protest side, you've probably never seen a bike used that way. So that you mean might like be like a bike is uh, like almost like a shield where yeah. they were like, you know, doing crowd control with the bikes. Yeah. I mean, unless you were fighting like an eight year old and like, mm-hmm. you know, when we were playing like ditch them and like all of a sudden you, you know, try to throw your bike at somebody or something. Mm-hmm. You, my, my, like, I feel like there's a high risk of, couldn't a perp. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Stick a, just like, like, yeah, a, like yeah. something in, in your spokes. In the front spokes. And then next thing you know, they, you're tea kettling. Is that a thing? They actually were trying, they were trying to do that. Yeah. And no they were shit. throwing down nails and glass and pretty much everything. You got like, yeah. you got fancy ride flat tires on there? Like foam tires? Nope. Or are they- you just, so we have people who are trained mechanics and they were just working overtime. Like we were and just wrenching on bikes. Uh, so, I mean, they can fix some things in the yeah. field or they yeah. bring them back and, but on the first night I got a flat cause of, they were throwing like glass bottles and stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I ended up commandeering one of the sergeant's bikes. He's like, just take this one, go find your, your squad. So I rode up the hill past this foot squad. And I was like, have you seen my squad? And they're like, they're down there. I start booking it down. Like one of the really, really steep hills. 
and I see I I'm behind like it's cops, protesters, and then I'm coming in behind the protesters. And I totally do one of those, you know, on this <laughs> super steep hill, turn around and bike back up. And I'm sure it was hilarious to the protesters. Yeah. You need a kid like DJ out like, there that can fix anything with some like a bungee cord and a little bit of, yeah, like, yeah. You need, hey, uh, yeah, I'll fix that. We uh. ha- yeah. We have a couple of those and they come in handy for sure. Yeah. He's like, I got some chewing gum and a bungee yeah. cord. You'll be fine. <laughs> but so, yeah, it's a, I, they actually work really well for crowd control. We've had to adapt a bit just because their tactics have changed and kind of, um, so we've had to adapt mm-hmm. to them a bit. But. It, isn't it weird, like the escalation of force? Like as I'm sitting here being like, wow, people, if people are throwing bottles, glass, nails, cinder blocks, bricks, like, you know, Molotov cocktails, and you're out there with like a bicycle being like, stop, please, we don't want to hurt you. You know, it, it's... Uh, I, I don't know, like, I've, I've always felt that, like, um, maybe, like, force meets force, like, whatever it escalates, like, you know, like, if somebody's throwing a bottle, I probably should be able to throw it back at them. I mean, which I know doesn't necessarily work in police force or police work, because if somebody gets injured, it's a city liable, and you're in this position to, you know, protect and serve. But it just feels like uh, if people are going to do that, then they're kind of, at least in my book, they're you kind of lose your right to, I guess, civility when you start kind of going in that direction. Does that make sense? Well, it's an incredibly hard situation to deal with because, again, you've got some people that aren't doing anything. They're just standing there, and they tend to be at the front, and then you've got the people throwing things at the back and how to deal with that and not, you know, have, like, somebody who wasn't doing anything get, you know, get involved in it. So, I mean, early on we were using um, CS gas, which was incredibly helpful because it – it doesn't stay with you very long. It's not like pepper spray. Um, it It's super strong, super fast. You want to choke and, you know, um, you're coughing a lot and a lot of snot. But once you get out of it, it's gone. It's super quick to, to wear off. But it was pretty much the only thing that we could do to get the crowds to disperse and start moving. Um, just using the blast balls and the pepper spray just weren't doing anything. Um, and... <clears throat> then uh, after <laughs> prolonged days of having to rely on that, um, the city council and some judges said we can't use it anymore. And then there's some legal fights back and forth. And it's gotten to a point where we figured out, um, well, A, the groups are a lot smaller and they're not doing the same destruction, but um, we haven't had to use it mm-hmm. again since all that t- stuff happened. But um you know, and that goes to technology, right? Is like those are less lethal force options we have that are not going to hurt you, but it will help us deal with these large scale events where we don't necessarily know who's throwing the the bottles and stuff. But if we can identify who it is in the crowd that's throwing it, we have, have tactics to, to go in and, and just sort of pick off that one person. Mm-hmm. So. so, Lexi, I mean, man, it's been a crazy few months for you. Right. So crazy year. Can you like, would you mind walking us through maybe like um, kind of the thick of your life when a lot of this stuff was at its peak X, like kind of escalation and and what was life for Lexi like and maybe your colleagues and uh, not to necessarily revisit the purely just the kind of negative circumstances, but maybe in those moments of darkness, like what, what kept pulling you through it? Because, you know, I've talked to, 
some folks who are involved in, you know, in Seattle and other areas that have been in this crowd control. And I'm just thinking like, walk, like, why not walk away? And you're one of those folks who have like soldiered on and have stayed committed to the oath you've taken. Like, can you just share a little bit of that? Um, I think in the, in the thick of it, it just, it was, I mean, it was exhausting. It was emotionally, physically exhausting. Um, I, I'm definitely very stubborn and I'm sort of a, a fix it person. So, you know, in my moments of downtime, I was, you know, thinking up this idea for a new sort of side hustle of how it can actually make some impactful change. Um, and I also just had the sense that I wanted to be there for my coworkers, you know, mm-hmm. that it was uh, something, and, you know, I, and also for the city, I mean, my parents still live in the city. I, I grew up there. I'm, you know, I, I know that we can get past it, but it's hard to say. I don't even think I, I thought about it too rationally. It was just sort of, you know, put one shoe on and then the other and go to work and get it done and try to find moments of, you know, some levity and just keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, so. You mentioned the side hustle and you're redirecting these, the, the stress, the feeling to then improve leadership on the, the front lines, truly. Can you speak mm-hmm. to the name of this project and where people yeah. can follow along? Sure, so uh, I found the name uh, Yura, I-U-R-A. So it's yurallc.com. Uh, That's, uh, it is a Latin word, it's sort of the root word for law, justice, jury. Um, but uh, my eventual goal is to do workshops um, from everywhere, from the line officer to, you know, command staff, just on on leadership, explore different ideas um, within leadership. Part of that is doing, I'm going to be doing a podcast and talking to people in different realms, whether it's coaches or um, CEOs, sheriffs, chiefs, um, and that sort of thing, just to kind of get a a better idea of what leadership looks like in these different realms, maybe open some people's minds um, and just give some people a little bit of hope for the future. I think that this can get better and, and it really does start with you, right? And, and the decisions you make, if you decide to stay, how you stay, if you stay and you, and you put your heart into it and you look for the positivity or if you're just going to be a, you know, just cranky old person that's, you know, skirts their calls and, you know, it's just sort of there for a paycheck. So that is my hope with it. Um, it's all just starting, but we've got some contact content up and, you know, we'll be continuing to, to do more. So. Awesome. And yeah. can you introduce different types of leadership that would be presented at uh, a police station or unit that you've experienced? One thing we, we spoke earlier on is officer centric leadership. What else is out there? and any way that people can look for departments like that to work for the right place for them? You know, it's it's hard because there are so many departments in the United States of America and every department is going to, <clears throat> so depending on if they are dealing with a union, uh, if it's a right to work state, uh, if it's a sheriff versus a chief, every command structure and how they promote people is gonna be different. Um, and if they put an emphasis on leadership training is gonna be different. Uh, there's no sort of standard. So a lot of times it's just, it's going to be um, going on ride-alongs and seeing if it, it feels like a good fit. Um, 
you know, obviously my goal is to make it more standard to have a focus on leadership. Um, but, you know, until that happens, you just have to sort of try out for yourself. I'd say as an individual in large departments um, such as Seattle, you really can, there's an advantage there because you can find good leaders all over the place, but you have to like actively seek out working for them. Um, and it might take a little while to get where you want to go, but um, but you have to seek out those people who are willing to be mentors and willing to coach and um, aren't just there for the protocol, right? Like, okay, you got in trouble. What boxes do I need to check to make sure that we're all not, you know, getting screwed on the back end? Um, and you really do. You have to seek those people out, and you have to just, I mean, be a bother to them until they get you on their team. Basically, is is what I do. Is and never say no. You know, if they ask you to do something, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. And um, so it takes a little bit of the onus on you to seek those people out, you know, um, and have that attitude of like, you need to be mentored. You know, you're new in this career. You have to find a mentor, whether it's another officer or a sergeant or a lieutenant. Don't assume that you can do this by yourself. Yeah. And then is, is it Euro.com? Do you have a website yes. up yet? Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's uh, Yes, I do. It's uh, Ura, I-U-R-A-L-L-C.com. Sweet. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. I think, um, like, silver lining again, maybe a lot of the folks who pre-COVID and George Floyd that are law enforcement that kind of had thought they had it figured out are maybe now more willing to invest in themselves and, and like rather than defund, kind of recharge, right? Recharge the police. And, and maybe communities are going to be willing to invest in, in their police departments and, you know, both socially and financially to help create an environment for officers to stay healthy and thrive, right? Because that's ultimately what you'd want. You want to feel like the cops are on your side, right? Yeah. Not, and uh, I know there's work to do on both sides for that in a lot of areas, Absolutely. right? And I think that's one of the most unfortunate things about what's happened is that it's uh, it's this div increasing divide of like us against mm -hmm. them from the community's standpoint, from officer standpoint. And, you know, you take away you start to say defund the police, you take away more officers, you give officers less time to deal with like to have those positive interactions. Right. And you make it more about just the um, just the 911 calls and just the times you have to arrest. And then on the officer's end, you feel attacked all the time and you don't feel like people in the community trust you. And it just is, it starts to get further and further and further away from being what we need it to be, which is working together, yeah. right? And it's a terrible feedback loop. It's a terrible feedback loop. And it, it you know, sometimes I'm like, how come people can't see this? But sometimes I think it's purposeful. It feels purposeful sometimes. Like, you know, the more we can divide, the easier it is to conquer. I don't know, but we need to work really hard to to start bringing that back together. And I've been fortunate, like I said, to find some of those people in my community that are willing to have those conversations. Yeah, it's good to hear. Well, I mean, Lexi, if there's anything we could do, introductions or whatever, to get you in touch with anyone to help facilitate the, the leadership growth in Seattle PD, I think I speak for the team here. We'd be happy to do it. Yeah. And and the nation. I'm I'm not stopping at Seattle. I want everybody to have uh, some resources with this. So. Sweet. So if there's if we have some law enforcement listening and they're looking to get access to this type of training, you're the person to reach out to. Absolutely. Reach out to me. Sweet. Well, well there you, you have it. There you have it. Law enforcement 
listeners, we've got to have a few, right? Oh, yeah, we definitely got a lot of law, law mm-hmm. enforcement. L-E-L's. I know I, the, the guys I talked to today, they listen mm-hmm. to it. So oh, yeah. I know we got a big community of people, and we have uh, you know a ton of programs that they're following, everything from Jack Street to Hammer to Field Strong, mm-hmm. to try to be the best they can be and hopefully starve off uh, a sedentary lifestyle of sitting and waiting for people to do bad shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I could say, I think just tying that back into leadership, obviously the people that are listening to your podcast are going to be those go-getters, those growth mindset people. But if they can, I know it's incredibly frustrating to try to pull someone along if they're not there yet Mm -hmm. but if they can just affect one person in their department you know that is looking at them and saying they're trying to make themselves better or they invite them along to do a a session with them or they show them what they eat for the day or whatever it is that is leadership right there and that is helping people that may not be there yet on the growth mindset see what that is like Mm -hmm. and follow along so i just say hopefully they they do that yeah, just grab one. Change one. Starts with one. Only takes one person. There you go. Well, Power Athlete Nation, thanks for listening to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. And Lexi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Um, yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Oh, yeah, anytime. Miss you, girl. It's a shame that we could I miss you, too. Have another symposium soon. Well, who knows? You never know what mm-hmm. 2021 will hold. Yes, I know. And, you know, Luke, Le- Luke just glared at me. Well, Lexi, <laughs> well, that's, glare that's you how he always looks. Lexi has one of the more important volunteer roles at the symposium the past couple of years. She is the initial contact point for the event. She organizes oh, I registration. She was, uh, the good, I, I thought she got you in text drinks. No, that that's was the, that's the intern. Ah, it's the intern. That was at Summer Strong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Summer Strong. But yeah, Lexi was All ballsy day. enough to, to run registration table, which is like the worst. But the you handled worst. it, crushed it. So, ah, yes, the old symposium. Yeah, maybe we'll think about that, Lexi. Yeah. We'll meditate on yeah, that. Yeah, you know, plan on it. Like you know, a month is uh, that a good amount of time? No, well, it, it takes two weeks. No. <laughs> yeah, weeks is, uh, twenty-one days. Twenty-one yeah. days. How about Gen Gen Ten? Yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah, we'll get it right. Well, okay, yeah, Lexi. Why not? We'll talk to you. Thank you. All right. Bye, Bye guys. Bye. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time. Bye.